Hello and welcome to the Back Page Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts, I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, you just saw Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Yeah. My first question to you is, were you excited that the dad from Caprica is the villain in that film? Um, because <laughs> I, I was. Isai Morales, I think he's called. Yeah. Uh, that, um, that made me very excited. Yeah, he's good in it. He's quite a... Uh more James Bondy villain than you're maybe used to from Mission Impossible which is mm. which is good the, the mad thing with him I mentioned this on the discord that uh, that that character was originally going to be Nicholas Holt yeah yeah completely different <laughs> and I cannot work out how they switch that because his age is like a very key part of the story in it and I'm like that, right. that yeah so slight distracted by the whole halt of it all and kind of like imagining what halt would be like in this film but i actually like that it was an older guy i like that the cast in this film is generally a little older like everyone's kind of like 40 and above and it's kind of like here are the grown-ups to make a proper blockbuster you know (laughs) yeah fair enough but it has been established that the only box office draws now are like over the age of 50 in hollywood so uh (laughs) so that's good uh yeah i was just quite um i was also taken aback by that because um i thought nicholas holt did seem like an exciting sort of villain on paper but then when they replaced it with him i was like okay i really like iso morales whenever i've seen him in things i'm like he's he's decent i know he's in ozark and i think he was in you know he's been a bunch of sort of tv stuff he was like deathstroke in the titans show and stuff like that right that's quite a break to get at his age really to get to you know to become the villain on on that sort of scale yeah what if they just like wanted someone who could be tolerant of all of um tom cruise and chris mccrory's like pandemic era bullshit of making impossible set pieces under ridiculous circumstances and just burning (laughs) through cash basically it's like we need someone who will politely come along for the ride yeah yeah we'll we'll talk about this when we do our mission impossible xxl patreon episode but there's there's something very interesting about like the actors you can put opposite crews like Mm. i think there has to be a bit of a fame gap otherwise people who are quote-unquote superstars might seem diminished next to him so you almost have to put people where there's like low threat of him interfering with their like their kind of fame in a way i i haven't quite worked out that theory yet but i think there's something in it no i think you're right i think like someone like john ham compliments tom cruise as opposed to like fights the energy of tom cruise but i don't think you could put like someone who can sit like well, Henry Cavill, then that's. I mean, that maybe. Anyway, we'll get into all this in the episode. There's, I think, there's certain people who can and can't go opposite him, and this, this, this um, guy definitely made the cut. Actually, on Nicholas Holt, and again, maybe this is better for the XSL episode. When we were watching, uh, rewatching Mission Impossible One the other day, I said to Catherine, in certain shots, he looks like Nicholas Holt, or Nicholas Holt looks like a younger Tom Cruise, to the point where I wonder if there was ever a sort of father-son storyline in the offing oh right or like a, i think i say like a clone storyline that's no, no, <laughs> that's but much like better the, it's, yeah. it's you know there is a there is a kind of connection to ethan hunt's past with the villain and i right. wondered if that's they changed that connection but it, if that maybe was what they were going to do with it because he does look a bit like him like right him. okay but we'll get to that then yes in the xxl episode <laughs> Sorry, that so. seemed like a shameless advert we really didn't set this up to be an advert for the patreon i was just shooting the shit really yeah. because i normally ask matthew about something he's been doing lately and that was the thing that he's been doing lately why don't you ask me how i'm doing and I'll oh, talk yeah instead. How, how are you doing <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm all right. What did I do at the weekend? I went to... No, I did nothing at the weekend, actually. that's I have to go further back. I went to 
Uh, London about a week or so ago, I went to two very nice restaurants. Went to Rita's in Soho and the French House um, in Soho also, which was recommended by that that extremely popular podcast about a menu that people do that some comedians do and i only listened to the first episode and they're a bit like oh it's a wacky menu podcast and i kind of tuned out but it seems to be phenomenally popular off menu is that what it's called yeah that's right that's good are you a fan of that podcast oh i've i've liked some episodes i've just like other episodes i'm I'm not a regular listener i'll listen in if there's someone who like i I think might be interesting on it Um, i'm not a big ed gamble guy Okay, but the other guy you like, right? Yeah. James Acasta. Yeah. yeah, you're a fan of that guy. You, yeah, I remember you talking up his stand up at one point. You got me, um, you got me fascinated to hear the stand up routine about his um, ex girlfriend dating Mr. Bean. Oh, that, yeah, I, that that I really wanted to check out. But so that that podcast recommended the French House, and I went there, and it's very very nice. So uh, that's what I've been doing. Mm. I wish there was a funny anecdote attached to it. I went to Gosh Comics actually in Soho while I was there. That is a fucking amazing comic book shop in the basement there. You can buy stickers for the Crow official sticker album. Um, or maybe they're trading cards, actually. Official trading cards of the Crow from the 90s. They just have, like, what? original packs there you can buy for, like, three quid or something. That uh, that rules. I love that you shit. Should, so, uh, uh, you should have bought a batch and turned yourself into a YouTuber whose whole shtick is you open unseen packs of the Crow <laughs> trading cards on YouTube. Blind openings. Isn't that a thing? Yeah, I think that's where my career's going after Games PR is so I'm just going to pivot into that, basically. Pivot into old, opening old trading card packets oh and God. see what I get. I got a shiny <laughs> card of Hoodlum number five. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did buy the um, like DC Comics Vertigo trading cards. And it was a bit like, instead of a shiny Charizard, I got like, Shade the Changing Man by Peter <laughs> Milligan. And it's like very different vibes, you know. So uh, I-, I used to collect yeah. Thunderbirds collector's cards when i was like a kid um mm. i'd get a packet of those when i lost a tooth from the tooth fairy right. um and <laughs> you know you just end up with like oh i've got my 16th virgil when what you really <laughs> want is you know the hood <laughs> <laughs> did your mum just buy you another pack of those since you just lost another tooth matthew this time <laughs> yanked out of your skull by uh by a dentist no, I'm afraid that... not. we're a bit beyond that <laughs> Okay, that's a shame. I'll, um, I'll I'll hit up the hood on uh, eBay and then send you send you Thanks. it. Um, just to, yeah, I think that might make you feel better. So yeah, I guess there is a vague advert for the uh, XL tier in there on Patreon, patreoncom slash pod. <laughs> no, there definitely is. <laughs> oh well, yeah, there is. If you'd like to um, listen to us rank the Mission Impossible movies, and also this month we've done twenty games that deserve a remake for the XL episode. So we continue to try and make those um, paywall content good for people, make a little mm. treasure trove. More than thirty exclusive episodes behind there now, etc. That's done. This episode, what we've been playing, it's actually been a little while since we did one of those. It was um, May, I think, was the last time we did this. We have a lot of listener questions backed up. Some are good, some are questionable. <laughs> oh, I'm already getting to that. I'm only joking. They're all good, etc., um, etc. Et mm. um, but first, we're going to talk... <laughs> <laughs> doubtful noise in brackets in the uh, in the old amazon prime video subtitles there <laughs> okay um yeah so we've got a, a bunch of games to discuss in the first part what we've been up to lately honestly the um the main thing i've been playing is like one game which we'll discuss in detail and aside from that metal gear solid 3 which obviously you heard on a previous podcast so we we've done that recently so i've not been playing loads of stuff but i've been playing quite a lot of like one title so i think we'll um We'll have some good stuff to discuss here. Um, Matthew, shall we jump straight into it and uh, get on with it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, that game is Final Fantasy sixteen. Matthew discussed it a bit on our top five Final Fantasy episodes. This is a long-awaited, new-numbered entry in the series, the first one since 2016. 
it is the first single player entry to be done by uh, whichever Square Enix production studio handles Final Fantasy fourteen. Um, so uh, yeah, under Creative Business Unit three. There you go. That's a, that's a dude who's had to think about this stuff a lot in the last few weeks, clearly. Um, and so they are, I think, seen as like a, a fairly safe pair of hands in terms of how they understand Final Fantasy. And, you know, there's um, also for people who, are, I guess, have uh, have not played Final Fantasy fourteen. it's interesting to be exposed to a bit of their, I guess, like their sensibilities. Mm. But again, I don't really know much about how Square Enix structures this stuff. It's just, uh, is it uh, Noki Yoshida? The, um, yes. The, the, uh, he's the, yeah, the executive producer Yoshi here. And he was the, yeah, that's right. Where does and the, so what's he the is, P for? Yeah, I have no idea. I was about to make a joke, but I have no idea, so I'm not even going to try. Um, powerful. The P is for powerful. Is there, is there a bit of iconography from Final Fantasy that begins with P? Oh, there probably is, and I'm failing massively oh. by not knowing it. That's that's on me, man. That's uh, that's classic um, Tuesday evening um, brain at work there. But yeah, so, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's become a very, very respected figure in the Final Fantasy community, really... The person credited with salvaging um, Final Fantasy fourteen from disaster and um, certainly seemed to be a really smart lateral thinker. When you see um, the story of how he, they did save Final Fantasy fourteen on the uh, no-clip video documentary about that, it he does just strike you as someone who's just like a level head. You know, mm. it's sort of like I don't. Know, I get the impression that it just there's it there's just like a, a a kind of like coolness to the decision making that is maybe. I don't know, from the outside looking in, refreshing when you're used to, let's say, the chaos of Final Fantasy versus 13 being in like development hell for like eight years and right. then getting given to a different studio and all this, or like Final Fantasy 7 remake, switching developers midway through development, like all that kind of stuff. This, this game seems very d- devoid of that kind of drama, really. It just seems to be they've been making it for years. It feels like a game that has had years and years of work put into it. Every creative decision, it feels very considered to me. Except maybe the side quests. We'll talk about that. But I think, Matthew, it's made an extremely strong first impression on me. So why don't you talk with how talk about how you feel about Final Fantasy sixteen so far? Yeah, so I haven't quite finished it, um, but I'm very near the end. Um, just to give people an indicator of where I'm at with it. Um, throughout the game, you're, you're playing as this guy called Clive... And he has the ability to kind of absorb powers from these icons, which are like your traditional kind of summons. They're called icons in this iteration. Um, And as he absorbs these powers, his moveset develops. So to give you some indication, I have one icon slot left. So I've got X number so far. So I I feel like I'm I'm like a couple of big boss fights away from the ending. well, basically, my, my opinion hasn't changed massively from when I talked about it before. I think what's interesting about this game is that it has a much more kind of like in the moment sort of third person action combat system. Um, people have likened it to sort of a Devil May Cry, and that's quite convenient shorthand because Devil May Cry 5's combat designer was the kind of combat director on this. So, you know, I think they've deliberately courted that comparison. Um, is it as complicated and sophisticated as a Devil May Cry? Probably not, I think. I don't know. Maybe you disagree. We can talk about that. But, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it's basically abandoned the you know any kind of semblance of sort of strategy or turn taking there's no ai party for you to control they control themselves so you really are just focusing on like clive in the moment um and the point i made before that i'm going to come back to now is is whether it makes is whether it's a combat system that's big enough to sustain a 50 60 hour game 
that Final Fantasy is. Um, I think it's very well matched to the central storyline, which has more traditional action game progression. Like, you know, you're going to these very linear levels, quite spectacular things are happening. There are like regular introduction of new enemy types, mini bosses, big bosses, giant bosses. There's a lot of like platinum style kind of galaxy sized gods in space in this game very satisfying on that level um but when it sort of steps out of that mode which it does for probably half two-thirds of the game it's not in that mode which is like your open world side quest stuff i find that you're suddenly left with this very elaborate combat system and very basic enemies to use it on and i don't know if that's entirely satisfying now what i haven't tested is the advanced difficulty that unlocks once you complete it first time round, which I think then like remixes all those fights. And if that gives a bit more teeth to those world encounters, maybe I'll feel differently about it. But right now, it's it's a game that when it's firing on all cylinders, I fucking love it. I think it's great. I think the bosses and the production values and the scale and the polish, unreal, really, really satisfying. But it also manages to be incredibly boring for at least half the time, which is like quite a tough thing to to navigate. <laughs> right. So I've got some I've got some thoughts on that stuff. Yeah. I think that to start with, like a bit more on on the premise, I guess, because yeah. it actually took me a while to get my head around what this game's story is really about. So right. you play this guy Clive, who's sort of like a black sheep in a one of the royal families of a house in this in this kingdom. And basically something bad happens to that house in flashback. And then it picks up years later where you are basically... Um, Clive is basically under under uh, under duress serving for this royal army. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he kind of breaks out of that and reunites with a childhood friend and goes off to discover what happened in the past. Now, in the midst of this, there are at least two empires um, warring <laughs> over this world and at the head of like these these sort of um, these empires these royal families are basically the final fantasy summons in the form of these gods controlled by people mm. and that's a, a very key part of the story because like, like you say clive goes around absorbing the powers of these which is a, a great premise i think for for slowly building up a combat system mm. um at the same time this world is afflicted by something called the blight which basically erases all life and is pushing um uh, pushing what 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 does live in this world into other places a very clear and you know analogy for global warming and you can't use magic in these places either when you get there so a lot of your more exciting abilities are stripped out of the game and the suggestion is as you allude to on that final fantasy episode matthew is that this world is quite fucked but the people who are in this world are more obsessed with um fighting over the bits that are left than actually saving it which is i think actually really lands as a notion quite well in this game yeah. without um without really overdoing it like it doesn't overcook that message it's actually kind of there for you to discover a little bit and figure out yourself by reading the bits of lore yeah. and stuff well, like that so it, yeah it's quite explicit at times about like if 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 the kind of heroes succeed in what they're trying to do it's probably going to make the world like a bit harder to live in you know it's kind of like we're going to take a step back you know you can't have this ease of life and the world will also survive you know like like surviving in the future is going to come at a cost which you know lots of people would say about 
the situation we're currently in is kind of can you know who's going to be the first to go well we don't have we don't have this ease of modern living anymore you know in exchange for like this world won't be burnt for fucking crisp in 50 years. <laughs> well, nev- never mind that, Matthew. We've got to argue about uh, fucking orange confetti at George Osborne's <laughs> wedding. So, yeah. on the analogy front, do you think the dominants, uh, who are the people who control these godlike figures at the at the head of each army, do you think they're meant to be, like, nukes? Uh, I think they're meant to be... I actually think what you said about it in that Final Fantasy episode nailed it, which is that... They are a mixed bag of people, some of which have inherited this power who don't really deserve it and and, and, are, and are irresponsible with that power. And I think that is probably also an analogy to our current moment where, mm. you know, certain political leaders are from wealthy backgrounds or, you know, we are in the kind of Nepo baby age, you know, just like... <laughs> Do you think this is a big barrage <laughs> against Nepo babies? <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. But... but the, but there is, a, but there, are, I think there is like a family element to who gets to be like yeah. the dominance of these, of these summons, right? So it is a suggestion that you shouldn't just, you shouldn't just have this power because you were in, you know, you were part of this lineage, which is, you mm. know, fair enough, I think. But yeah, I think it's just, it basically just posits that these people are more obsessed with power than they are about saving about saving this world. So it, it it works well without beating you over the head with it. But to be honest though, I think I'm just getting to the bit in the story where those characters are becoming more of a more of a factor and like the the attention is turned towards are they going to destroy the crystals so magic vanishes from the world? Is that the goal so Matthew that's of the sort of, that's sort of the company? Vibe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay, that's the game's premise then. Just wanted to lay that out for yeah, people who yeah. are not familiar with it. So top line for me, right? This is finally a Final Fantasy game I could recommend to most people without really blushing. I could right. be like, this is a lot of what the series does very well in a form you can enjoy without me giving you a load of caveats about weird laughing scenes between Tidus and Yuna or this the second half of this game. It clearly doesn't exist in the case of Final Fantasy XV. <laughs> mm. Or, you know, just like, um, you know, or so, like stuff that's sort of always been with Final Fantasy, like the the sort of like strangeness of it or the oddness of it, things that just seem super like hard to get over. This is like the, this is a really strong modern form of what this series should look like to me. It's like, it's... The combat, like you say, is is a is a slight departure. Though Final Fantasy fifteen was already a fully real time combat system, yeah. you did have you did have controlling party members in there as well, which you don't in there, so you can't tell your dog <laughs> what to do. So, in a way, isn't that also the same? Uh, it's not really, but um, <laughs> you have you have companions traveling with you who have abilities, so it does it doesn't feel like a lonely journey. It mm. does feel like a journey you take with other people in the spirit of Final Fantasy, at least. But the story is so confidently told and so coherent, like you've also mentioned before, you kind of you can always find out what's going on, even if you don't necessarily know what's going on at all times, because the game's giving gives you information in the background, very simple paragraphs to just explain here's what this empire is, here's what this event is, here's what this place is. Mm-hmm. If you want to pause a cutscene at any time and check that stuff, you can, which is good. But the characterization's really clear. The dialogue is excellent because the localization is fucking incredible in this game, like an absolute all-timer. 
uh, localization job to me um you know very immersive for me getting to the west country bit of this game and hearing lots of like um you know no luck catching them swans then kind of accents <laughs> going on uh, <laughs> i was like yeah well done that is um that's very good um someone said i think Cl- uh, sid says cunning stunts at some point so you're like yep this is this was not localized by you know like one tired man in america like the the <laughs> like uh snes rpgs were back in the day it's a very different um proposition so it's like a really solid form to hand someone and be like okay this is the essence of what final fantasy is in a modern blockbuster in a way you can really enjoy right down to the fact that the combat the real time combat is like you say not as complex as devil may cry but way more complex than it needed to be um necessarily so it's like you do have to you're probably not going to get many game overs if you're even remotely familiar with like you know recent third person action games right it's not that hard if you play it on the more combat focused mode but a lot of the principles that have like um have governed you know the souls games and devil may cry things like you know the sort of attack patterns of enemies area of effect that sort of thing when you move when you duck when you when you quickly zoom after an enemy timings you know like um when to play defensively when to play offensively all those principles have helped guide the combat system so i think that makes it incredibly strong mm. um at its core which is which is great because i'm constantly excited by the action in this game even if it doesn't have like the hardcore credential of devil may cry necessarily it's like it's always stimulating my brain in some way you can't just press one button and get to the end of it and that was my concern with where some games were going in the noughties and the early 2010s so mm. um it has avoided that it requires you your brain to be switched on and like you say some of the boss encounters are incredible your point about the downtime in this game right mm. you are not as used to final fantasy as i am and my <laughs> i posit to you my friend that random battles in final fantasy have always been a bit like this okay. um there's, there's always been that downtime there's always been that lack of momentum to well now i just grind through a bunch of these guys now you could argue that like that's you know maybe there was a better form of them approaching this i think you do still get some like tougher enemies in the wild who require you to use the you know like the dodging and the parrying and the the systems you've learned to deal with bosses Mm. you are still required to use those because they can be tricky but i do agree that like sometimes it's just a case of well i'll just clear these guys out and then move on and that i think may be tied to the lack of imagination behind the side quests in this game versus the main quest, which has so much momentum and is so exciting so much of the time, is maybe a fair criticism that the pacing um, is not for everyone, Matthew. Thoughts? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'd be interested to, to like come back round to this when you're closer to the end because I feel like with where the plot goes and where the scale goes... It feels it feels more and more jarring, basically, to go from like, you know, even bigger boss encounter to like back to can you go and get me, you know, five bloody hides? And you're like, oh man, really? Like I've literally been in fucking you know the outer atmosphere of this planet, you know, like <laughs> oh, this is beneath me now, like literally. And <laughs> um, that so I, I I just I just can't get over that and. Like, I'm very much at a point now where I'm like, I just really want this to finish. But at the same time, I just can't leave the side stuff alone. 
like it's the compulsive map clearing icon ticking part of my brain you know games have just done such a fucking number on me that I'm, i find it very very hard to resist that stuff and there's there's like little enough of it that you feel the need to do it but enough of it that it's just just adding like an extra half an hour where there doesn't need to be an extra half an hour um yeah and also like i just find that that like the, you know the quality of the localization throughout is great but you know dramatically it's it's a lot flatter you know when, when you're away from like the proper cutscene choreography like there's there's definitely like two tiers of cutscene in this game on the main quest and then the kind of quite static I mean, i've said it before like a bit like yakuza where you just have two character models kind of standing opposite each other kind of <laughs> having text boxes back and forth and that's fine you know like it's okay but at least with yakuza like what happens is often like balmy enough that you don't really notice here yeah, it's it's there are a few like there are a few good quests i will say actually as as it's gone on there's been some quests which have kind of coloured in some parts of the world in quite a nice way, which even though the what you did in the quests were boring, their actual like narrative purpose made sense. And also it puts uh quite a lot of side character stuff in the later quests as it goes on. Like the section I'm in now, it feels like it's actually using the side quests to pad out a lot of the named characters. So you feel even more compelled to do them because you want to know what the deal is with these AI companions who are a bit unknowable otherwise. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's still, it's still, still a problem for me, but I do, I do take your point about the random encounters and maybe that is just part of the tradition is like, here's just a load of like stodgy, pointless combat. But, um, you know, yeah. when, when you know how good and alive it can be and it's so like, you know, nimble and kind of reactive under your thumbs. It's 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 kind of even harder to be torn away from that. I'd I'd argue. Yeah, I think I I think I do get that, and I think that it's sort of a it's an odd reality check in some ways to go from those massive peaks to this these languid moments. And I think to also just like you know bring in more like Square Enix business units into this conversation. This has the exact side quest problem that FF Seven Remake had, where as previously joked about Matthew, it's a lot of squeezing through gaps to retrieve urchins in FF7 <laughs> Remake, which is completely accurate and sort of the case here. I also wish here, I beg them, can you just cut two seconds of animation when an NPC turns towards you before they start talking? <laughs> There's just that moment of them adjusting, getting into their conversation oh, yeah. stance. So I'm just like, no, every there's, single time, just cut this out. You know what I mean? There's that. Yeah. There's a lot of like fade outs. There's just a lot of weird little presentational, like second here or there, which which really add up. Um, yeah. It just doesn't feel very like nimble on its feet in those moments. But you know, yeah. that's that's okay. I mean, you know, that I don't want to just focus on that negative stuff because you know when the game goes like hard and goes big, like it's absolutely amazing looking. Like it's kind of a, you know, what happens if Platinum had you know, like three times the budget they usually had to work with kind of style boss. You know, there's like the, uh, you, you fought Garuda. You must've fought her already. The, the big oh, yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, like the character design is just so nuanced and like all these feather, you know, it, it, it's really like stunning. And the amount of um, like animation that goes into like the quick time events, which are just you know, if if you if you if you dig quick time events, this game has some just spectacularly over the top ones. It does. Like the quick time events as well are interesting because in some ways I can see why maybe 
RPG purists don't love the idea that, you know, like your health bar that you see for a boss might secretly not be the health bar. It might actually be like three quarters of that health bar than the last one is a QTE that right. you just jam a button. So, but, but I would say that the compared to the like QTEs I've seen in, I guess, like I'm trying to think where I've seen QTEs most recently, like Avengers, did that maybe have a couple of them? I don't really remember them that well, to be honest, but. Mm. Certainly they felt out of date or strange or not very exciting. When you see them, you're just a bit like, ah, this feels like old game design. This one, that this in this game, though, they are used to just heighten these big story moments where it's like, we want to just not have you, you know, finish a boss fight, a flurry of swipes. It's just like, we want to do a moment where you like jam a sword into a big eye or something like that mm. and really, really go to town with it. And so in those moments to kind of like punctuate the end of a very exciting set piece or a very exciting boss battles they work incredibly well so they really earn them i think qtes is like an idea yeah so yeah those those highs are just are just so high and it's when i when i'm playing it and when that's happening i'm just like final fantasy really feels like it's on top here it's it's like this is kind of everything i want from final fantasy also the way that the summons are woven in as iconography in this game i do love Mm. um the idea that they are representative of nations basically they are just like yeah they are these sort of like unwieldy gods basically controlled by people that is you know i always like it when the summons are woven into the story of um of these games and i like the way that 15 did that with like bahamut basically is like this you know this sort of god figure you make like a pact with and then years later you you know the the pact is is paid off and that sort of thing i just i think that always kind of is like that the story of that game fuck <laughs> Yeah, it's like a time jump. I think like he makes a. I think like Noctis makes a deal with Bahamut, and then oh, that's why there's a bit where like they. I think like Bahamut nods at Noctis before he like stabs <laughs> Ifrit or something. We don't need to get into that now. But um, that is like a anyway, game compared to this very, one. Well, that's the thing, though, right? It's like I couldn't say to people, "Oh, fifteen has got a great story." I could say to them, fifteen is an amazing." Uh, sort of like uh, you know like a dream vision of what it's like to go on the best road trip with your friends that you'll never go on because (laughs) your friends in real life are too annoying and someone will need to take a shit at a roadside or something (laughs) or your car will break down well you know like it's sort of like you know just it's basically just like a fantasy fulfilled right it's like you know oh it's you're spending time with your friends on this great journey and it's really it's really cool and that was the thing the game did well but there was all this other stuff you had to fight to to get around it. And also, 15 didn't have great combat. 15 had very showy combat that could be very exciting in moments. And like this game, had the scale that could get you really excited. But this game has like good mechanics to go along with yeah. it. And so I can't under, underline enough like what a tick in its favourite is. So that, combined with a coherent story, just makes it such an easy game to recommend. Mm. And... In some ways, I sympathise with them. They were, I think, they were like tweeting right near release, uh, so, saying something like, "You don't need to have played the previous fifteen to enjoy this one," which makes me wonder: had they got some figures or something like that, some kind of statistics to say, "Oh, younger people don't realise that this is actually a standalone game, and it doesn't matter if you've not played the previous games in the series," and they were just like, "Play this," because I agree. I think that anyone who buys like you know like 10 million yeah people the 10 20 million people who buy god of war ragnarok should all be buying this because it's that qual it's that quality level to me it's that same level and arguably i i you know i prefer this game in a bunch of ways to be honest um uh you know it doesn't have any ox patting does it matthew i've not got to that yet <laughs> uh no i don't think so i don't think right. so it's got some sections where i'm like this is taking me away from the fun bits for too long, which is my criticism of God of War, but like in a different way. There's no, act, no, there's no long ox ride in this. 
No, there's like a Moogle, I guess, in, is an equivalent to the comedy squirrel or whatever the fuck he was in. Um, yeah, Ragnarok, but he's not voiced where... by a YouTuber, so that's <laughs> no, that's very true. So yeah, it's uh, I, I honestly, I'm just absolutely loving it so far, and the way that it basically lays in more Devil May Cry combat styles when you you know you take these summon powers is really really cool because. The Garuda one you get, like you say, is basically the Nero Claw from Devil May Cry 4 and mm. then 5, right? It's like the pull small enemies towards you. It should pull you towards larger enemies as well, but it doesn't do that, which I find slightly irritating. But it's still a cool power. So mm. so it's layering in these different fighting styles. Like It's it's giving you that, that sort of progression arc that you want from Final Fantasy, but doing it with real-time action. But, you know, like you say, Matthew, I think I'm 20 hours in, so I've got a long way to go. Yeah. And, you know, I might, might, maybe I'll change my mind, because those side quests are not very good and that is that's a shame because it's something that even like cyberpunk did well right it, cyberpunk had like these big narrative um driven side quests that i think land better than just any form you can think of of go here and kill this thing and bring it back to this dude for a yeah. very innocuous reason so cyberpunk had it had it right even if those quests were like gameplay wise not didn't have a massive amount of variety to them you know mm, mm. Yeah, yeah for sure yeah. So yeah, good. Oh, good game. I'm glad. I'm. I'm happy that you're having a good time with it. And as a Final Fantasy like, uh, this is kind of, you know, ticking ticking that box. It's a nice, yeah. nice thing to be able to like just be excited about and get behind. Very like, just very confident, polished. You know, it released in a really good state. Like it, it, it's it's a great advert for like what you want a AAA game release to be. Yeah complete feeling that's the thing it feels complete it feels like yeah just you know it feels like it's just had months and months of polish you know maybe even years just to to get everything right so uh oh. yeah although um i have i have gone against the uh matthew castle creed by putting um performance mode on matthew which Ugh. uh honestly <laughs> like it yeah well well i'm not going i'm not getting into this <laughs> <laughs> and the frame rate is not our uh not our whole thing so that's final fantasy 16 i'll keep playing it and um when i finish it we can maybe talk about it again a little sort of round up our thoughts and mm. i have no doubt it will feature in at least one of our game of the year lists at the wanna, end of this yeah year, i want to so. know how you get on with like the sexier bits yeah, I mean, I've not got to that yet. The uh, masturbating in different rooms thing—that's uh, <laughs> that's a reference to the recent Patreon episode again. Um, Craven, uh, sort of like paywalled content advert there. But Matthew, why don't you talk about your second game in this uh, list? Yeah, this is Master Detective Archives Rain Code, aka what Mister Danganronpa did next. This is from a lot of the Danganronpa team. Mister um, Kadaka is the writer's name. It, is I mean, it's what what he did next after Danganronpa was basically make Danganronpa again. It turns out this is very similar to Danganronpa in ways that I didn't really expect. Um, obviously, Danganronpa was set it was sort of a visual novel set inside this school where a load of people were locked in and had to murder each other to try and escape. And each level kind of culminated with a trial where you were trying to work out who the who the perpetrator was uh this is set in a city where you are part of this detective agency you are all kind of like master detectives is the, is the kind of the terminology of the game where they all have like some mad superpower um so it doesn't have that kind of like instant like thriller hook of danganronpa it's a little bit more uh, i don't want to say it's like la noir that's that would be really overselling what this game is uh, but you have a 3D world that you can sort of like explore a little bit and there are sort of side quests in it. So it, it's trying to kind of pad out that experience and and feel like a, 
a probably a more ambitious next step after Danganronpa by kind of breaking you out of those quite limited corridors. On that level, I'd say it isn't hugely successful. Like, I don't think the open world particularly adds much to it, apart from a load of technical woes on Switch. This was clearly a game which is, like, a little bit beyond Switch, despite being a Switch exclusive. If this doesn't eventually come out on everything else, I'd be incredibly surprised. Like, I think it was announced as a multi-format game, and then they kind of went, no, it's Switch only, because Nintendo put promotion behind it, so... You know, it's it's I, I can see how there's probably quite a good looking game in here, but it ain't working on Switch for me. Also, like the open world stuff, the side missions are very, very poor. It's just a load of fetch quests, basically. It doesn't have, bring in any of the cool detective mechanics or thinking into those side quests, so they feel pretty redundant. Um, so what you actually end up with is a game which is probably best when it behaves more linearly, like like Danganronpa. You are solving these cases, there's often a murder, you walk around them, you sort of investigate the crime scenes, you talk to people, you collect lots of bits of evidence. And then in a kind of persona-like twist, uh, you've made this pact with this sort of death god called Shinigami, and she pulls you into this... Uh, it's called the Mystery Labyrinth, which is basically the Mind Palace from Persona 5. And right. in this surreal landscape, it becomes like a, a physical embodiment of what the mystery is. And you kind of like run through it doing kind of like quick, like quick time events, crime scene reconstructions, and these sort of death matches where you fight in these arenas and you have to use... Uh, contradicting pieces of evidence to like slash away at lies which is basically what Danganronpa did except with guns in Danganronpa you shot down the lies with truth bullets here you chop up the lies with the sword of proof or whatever but where the trials in Danganronpa Danganronpa were limited to this room they've tried to make this more exciting kind of roller coaster ride it's a lot more kind of hyperkinetic it feels like it's meant to be the kind of blockbuster sort of 3D, more ambitious, bigger budget version of what a Danganronpa is, even though functionally it's basically the same game. That's all fine. Like, I quite like the palace as a uh, a kind of physical representation of, like, the route you take to a solution. Like, the idea of, like, picking at different threads and the way it, it visualises that is actually quite fun. Um, you know, I'm into that a lot. The mysteries, uh, as in Danganronpa, excellent. Uh, Kadaka works with a a crime writer whose name I've forgotten, not a person I've read in translation or anything. So the mysteries are all very sound, very of the, like, locked room, impossible mystery variety. They're often very kind of out there and they've got quite loopy solutions. Not very Ace Attorney, a lot more kind of, like, hardcore Japanese mystery fiction. Obviously a big tick. Um, The problem I have with this game is... Uh, your sidekick, Shimagami, uh, and I don't mean to be too hand-wringy about this, but she's absolutely foul. Like a really <laughs> depressing, gross, sexualized character. And it just really bummed me out whenever she opened her mouth. She's she's incredibly hostile towards the other female characters in the game, and it just comes across as like grossly misogynistic. Um, right. Like, normally, I, sh- I can shrug off kind of like anime titillation in games like it's not for me but i'm like whatever but this was actually a case where i thought uh i kind of hate this character and every time she talks which is throughout the game because she's a sidekick it kind of makes me like it less and it 
it, it kind of makes it a bit of a miss for me. I just fa- I found a, a like just a huge fucking buzzkill, which is a shame because there's a lot of thought goes into these mysteries. That's the thing I don't really understand about this game is it is it has this like bookishness to it, like the intellectual kind of excellence of constructing these very satisfying mysteries combined with this just stupid schoolboy humor, which I just don't see how. Those two things just don't speak to the same group of people, or they they right. definitely don't both speak to me. And yeah, I, I, it's a big, big disappointment. Yeah. So is that does that same tonal clash really occur in Danganronpa Matthew? I mean, is it like a persistent problem between the the two it sets is, of games? It is like his vibe. Like I guess the thing I'd liken it to in Danganronpa, there's this like bear mascot called Monokuma, who's kind of like perverted and has this quite pervy relationship with this other. Um, mascot this little rabbit in the second game and some of that stuff's like a little close to the knuckle and you're like uh but again like there i'm like oh i don't really like this but he kind of fucks off enough but this it's like she's a permanent voice in your ear and you're the only person you can see her and so she's basically there just being like a huge asshole for like 30 hours of a game and I, I, it's funny actually reading the other reviews some people are like this character's so funny and you're like well you've got a fucking rank sense of humour I hated this character <laughs> like it's very rare I take against the character this sort of vehemently but yeah it, it's in Danganronpa and I've said before like my recommendation of Danganronpa always comes with the caveat of you are going to have to put up with some like some slightly risque some slightly queasy shit in there like that's just his vibe, you know. He he goes like hyper in on everything. Everything is like hyper violent, hyper suggestive, hyper aggressive. Like that is clearly his style. I just this just yeah, just didn't land for me. Yeah. Do you think the game? It's interesting to look at the visuals of this game and be like, okay, first of all, the Switch trailer for this is definitely running at under thirty frames per second. In some pits, you can tell. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Does it really benefit from the wider canvas? Like, is there was that a waste of time doing that? Like, is it or ultimately is the mystery? I suppose, like in the case of at least going inside the mystery, you get that physical, that palpable kind of element to it. And, yeah, I mean, you know the imagination behind it. But like, I guess, like, does it does the entire game benefit from that increase in uh, you know I mean, presentation? Like, there's a, there's scale? a bit of excitement of like, you know, oh, I'm going to go into this building and what am I going to discover there and like you know, where are the mysteries going to play out and how is this world, you know, going to be put to use? Because, you know, one of the limitations of Danganronpa is that, you know, everyone's trapped in this environment, so all the murders have to take place in the facilities provided. You know, just having a city means you have, like, an infinite variety of locations. You know, if you want to set a mystery on, like, a big train, then you can have a train mystery. If you want to have a mystery which like you have multiple mock r- locked rooms spread across the city you can do that as well like the, the, but that could have been done in a visual novel you could have just had the story is set in a city um like not a lot happens actually in the streets to have made it worthwhile like i feel like it was a decision that they made because they wanted to be able to show 3d characters walking around like more graphically enhanced 3d world so it just mm. looks like other games you might like you know i yeah. think there's a chip on its shoulder about you know 
have you maximized your visual novel audience how do you maybe trick people who would balk at that into playing this let's have it look like something else you know let's have it look a bit like a cyberpunky city or something let's let's do that and like i think if it was more if it was executed in a more technically sound way I think this game could have quite good vibes. It's got an amazing soundtrack. It's it's the guy who did the soundtrack to like No More Heroes. All right. Yeah. So it's got that's... like it's very like vibey, repetitive beats, kind of drones. So that's sort of like you know that whatever it is, lo-fi beats to relax to. It's kind of got that energy to it, and <laughs> the fact that it's constantly raining in the city. I could see it conjuring quite an interesting sense of place, but instead your eyes just drawn to like oh man, the frame rate's horrible. Or like, one thing this game really struggles with is reflections, which in a waterlogged world covered in like neon signs is like a big problem. Like, the reflections are constantly popping in and out. Like, it's a switch. It it can't do this stuff, you know. It's like a... It feels like this could be a... Like a, you know... It's trying to make the most of like the Unreal Engine and that just never looks very good on Switch. It just always... Yeah. Ugh. do you think you'd feel a bit differently about it if you're playing it on Steam Deck? Do you think that would make it an easier recommendation? Uh, yeah, I mean, really, the tech side of it, it like that isn't the big deal breaker. It really is the characterization side, right, and right. I like, I don't know. I always worry when you bring these things up. Like, you just sound like you're being prudish or a bit of a stick in the mud, and that's why I don't tend to bring these things up. You know, like what other people are into is their own business. You know, it's not for. I don't want to be too <laughs> puritanical ever like in in how i talk or think about games like that isn't for me um that isn't really how i think about stuff in general but every once in a while something just like rubs you up the wrong way or gets in your face and uh yeah i just i I don't know i think it was going for humor i just think there's a streak of ugliness in this game which just make makes it a very bad hang (laughs) yeah yeah so you saying that just reminded me you saying i'm not too british reminded me of that yeah, like ridiculous video of that Australian politician going, people are entitled to their sexual proclivities, and starts talking about crocodiles and all that. <laughs> yeah. Remember that guy? <laughs> Vaguely recall that for yeah, some reason. Like, um, but yeah, yeah, but some, no, yeah. Some, some people are, you know, some people don't, like, you know, and that's fine. But I, I, I just, uh, yeah, I don't know yeah. why this one, this one annoyed me. I think it's because the mysteries are good. You're like, why didn't you, you, you landed the hard bit, which is being like a cool detective game. Why did you yeah. add all this bullshit to it? You know, I think it's. But personally, I think it's because I'm like you. Where I'm, I don't. I actually don't really. It doesn't really bother me that these games, that games exist, that really lean into that stuff. But it becomes a thing of like, if I want to recommend it to someone else as like a serious piece of media, right? And I'm like, and I'm like, yes, there is. But also, there are like DLC skins in this game for like the schoolgirl characters to wear <laughs> bikinis. It's like it becomes. It becomes one of those things where I'm like, well. I can't be the guy who's talking about, oh, yeah, you know, like, uh, I've just watched season one of Atlanta, but also, you know, play this anime bullshit game. <laughs> like, I want to be that guy. I want to be able to recommend both. But I do think it just, especially like as you get a bit older, I guess you just become a bit more aware of it as, like, a factor that that can potentially drag things down when it's too cheesecakey or too nonsensical, too egregious in the case of this yeah. game. So I, I'm with you. I'm not I'm not prudish, but I'm just like, ah, it's like if you just eased it off a little bit, it would be a bit easier to recommend to other adults, you know? A bit of that to yeah. it. So, yeah. Hmm. Tough. Interesting. Yeah, tough break. But the mysteries are really good. I'd say if if you could put up with Danganronpa, you can probably put up with this. But, like, uh, you know, 
I just want you to know that when you get to bits where you're like, yikes, I also thought yikes. Don't worry, I don't think it's cool. <laughs> like, I just, <laughs> just want to make that very clear. <laughs> Me and this game are not like friends. <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, all of like Higashino's work could benefit from some anime schoolgirls, Matthew. I think you've uh, you just lack imagination, my friend. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just trying to speak your language there. Thank you. Okay, that's, good. That's great. Like that you know Higashino's name. Like that means a lot to me. Oh, I, I keep. I'm really tempted to start a runner where I'm going. I want to ask. Oh, how's the new Higashino every single episode? <laughs> just because, because like you see mentioned the new Higashino recently, and like you also mentioned it with the air of oh, people people know what this is now on this podcast, and it just uh, just cracked me up. So well, uh, they should. I yeah. talk about it a lot. Well, no, but I respect that. I respect your interests. And uh, yeah, it's fine. I'm not making fun anyway. That's uh, It's all good. Okay. R- should we move on to the next game, Yes, yes. From the, from the ridiculous to the sublime. Yeah. So um, I've been playing Trepang 2 or Trepang Squared. I don't know how you say this, but I think it's Trepang 2. It's um, basically uh, a fear-alike published by Team 17. And by fear-alike, I mean it's basically like a first-person shooter with powers, single player, but there are quite... Uh, sort of like in your face oppressive horror vibes to it as well so you're shooting up a lot of identical looking dudes while they make horrible sounds sometimes you're shooting those dudes when you're invisible or in slow motion and it's extremely bloody and it's uh, i would say like almost like a soldier of fortune level of violence to someone it was but also there is like a comic kind of like if you walk into a body it just ragdolls like hell and moves around so you're like okay this is quite silly as well so i think you definitely see the indie seams to it but i think this is a very good cover version of that type of game and i think as like the nostalgia in the first person shooter movement has been more around that kind of like doom era of first person shooter right like maybe it's pushing out of that a little bit more maybe that's a bit outdated as a reference but certainly like you know the lights of dusk and um, a medieval or riffing on you know sort of like mid-90s stuff so it's interesting to get to a shooter that's more riffing on like mid-naughty stuff so um it's got the uh you can sort of slide through enemies and do like a big kick and knock them over that sort of stuff it's very a very physical feeling uh, first person shooter i'm about i don't know like an hour and a half into it it's 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 very enjoyable there's there is like a story in it that is a bit messy it's like it, it's trying to sort of lace in through bits of lore and objects you pick up like something that feels like a mishmash of horror and john wick uh and and like resident Ooh. evil sort of evil corporations and it doesn't amount to much but i think if you just ignore it and focus on the shooting which is good and sounds very good and feels very good it's like it's extremely enjoyable um so i it's, it's made a very good first impression i will persist with it Ooh. it's out now on pc and it is coming to consoles as well does it, does like, it have like the jump scares of fear it is not quite as good at the set pc Right. scares factor of it which i think fear was excellent at which i i really recognized that when we did that um backwards compatible episode mm. and we went back and um we played it and i was like oh i thought i actually forgot how handcrafted the set pieces in this felt this is this has a, like a bit of that dna but and it definitely has like bits of story you come across but it's not it's not quite as presentationally up there i would say it's right. like it's not it's not like a it doesn't feel like it's it's yeah it's quite on that level but it's um yeah close enough for what it is i would say matthew so Mm. yeah it's it's not bad at all and like i say it's just just like the hearing the awful sounds of dudes dying um (laughs) while you sort of like zip around them in slow motion with very meaty feeling shotguns and machine guns feels 
feels super nice. Um, and yeah, I'm sort of also not ruling out the idea that it could get scarier, but I think because the plot is slightly incoherent, I'm just sort of like, I'm more just focused on the action and things like that. It's but, more, um, eh? Then, ah! <laughs> that would be my yeah. strap line. <laughs> That's a better written down that one. But, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, it's still, you know, hey, it's a good effort. I appreciate Thanks. it. So, yeah, I, like I say, I, I want people to make more shooters that feel like early naughty shooters, and you know, that just because I think that is a rich vein in itself of like, um, you know, aesthetic and and feel yeah, and things like that. Feel, so yeah, yeah, I feel like I've maybe played enough nineties clones now. You know, yeah. it's like we'll catch up. I wonder if we'll ever get to the era where people are like mimicking Half Life on an indie level. Yeah, it's funny because we've kind of gone through the sort of arc that we had with Doom Alikes, where there are so many, there are almost too many to play, and not all of them are like of the same level, which is quite quite interesting. It's sort that is sort of what happened, and then um, the game changed, obviously, with like Quake and, and Half Life, and yeah, so it you know it became it became a different ball game mm. in a lot of ways. But yeah, so I'm sort of with you. I think it's I think there is it is time to sort of do that. And I think we'll probably see more of that come along. There's the um, What's the what the sort of like slightly thiefy one with guns that um I think got a really good response from people. Uh I can't remember what that one was called, Gloom but it's Ultra something? Kill as well. No. And Gloomwood, is that right? Is that I it? I think that's it. They've all got names like that. <laughs> Gloomwood, yeah, stealth horror FPS, that's right. So, you know, it's it is like progressively moving along, um, it would seem. Um and so yeah, which which is exciting. But yeah, this was I wasn't expecting I think this is just so precise as a kind of like an homage. It just that's why that's why I think it works. That's why I don't I think it doesn't fall into the the ranks of just like other indie first person shooters. It's like it's riffing on something that if you were there in the early three sixty era, then this will this is tapping into something that will scratch apart your brain in a way that you quite like, I think. So um mm. yeah, it's a it's a tentative recommendation from me, dog. Mm. So uh yes, we get to your final game, Matthew, of this episode. Yeah, this is just a little mention of Baldur's Gate three. I went to a press event, my first one in quite a long time, um, over in Ghent in Belgium, uh, to play uh like the final version of Baldur's Gate three, I guess. Uh, I was actually playing it on PS five, which is coming out like a month after the PC version, so it wasn't the final final. There's a little bit of work to be done on it, but I was just there to sort of check out how that was looking and controlling and everything. Um, but it, you know, very interesting to see their, you know, presentation about, you know, they sort of showed us some stuff from the third act of the game and kind of took us through it and talked about all the kind of changes beyond early access. Obviously, a game I've got huge affection for. I've been following this right from the start. Um, I was there when they did the first reveal of it at um, Sven from Larian's uh, his actual house. Um, did I ever tell you about that? Uh, I think you did, maybe, on this podcast. Yeah, Why don't you okay. refresh us? We've been because going it's for so like... long. Oh, we... <laughs> the, the announcement event for this was like five journalists invited to his house outside Ghent. It's a very nice house. It looks like something out of Hitman. It's very like elaborate architecture. It ha- I mean, It's been so long that I've forgotten large chunks of this anecdote. It had some kind of animal statue right inside the front door. So the first thing you see when you open up is like, a big plastic lion or a panther or something, um, right. which sort of sets the tone. And yeah, it, they showed us the game, and then uh, he, we had a barbecue with him and his family. It was a really delightful time. Um, yeah, didn't that, that sounds like a, a big will send Fraser from PC Gamer Energy? Yeah, that Fraser, that's the first yeah. time I met Fraser. Actually, yeah, he was yeah. he was there, and um, 
yeah, you were like, oh yeah, this is great. Like, I, I, this is this is good. I'm into this. Um, I've been fully <laughs> bought by this experience. It's very, very wholesome. I got to eat some nice barbecue. Uh, I got to drink some very incredibly alcoholic Belgian beers. Um, which oh, are very it's funny. Strong. I love the idea that the you know common common uh, so commenters always assume that like corruption is down to us being sent money bags when really it's a polite barbecue at someone's house that completely wins you over to their whole deal that's like that's how you corrupt matthew castle with yeah. like cooked meats basically um, so yeah so i've been following this game all the way through and going to preview events and covering it for like rps one of the things i was sort of like weirdly most sad about when i got kicked out of rps was like oh i'm not gonna get to see this through like i was actually having some success with with Baldur's Gate 3 on the channel and I felt like we were covering it quite comprehensively and I was like oh it'd be great to see just a game through from start to finish but anyway so to be able to sort of slot in now come in at the at the end and 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 kind of write about it again albeit in a in a new job that's cool there's too much of the game to kind of go into really there's one thing i wanted to draw out that they introduced which is which is super interesting in that uh it obviously has a lot of character customization you can build your own character from scratch or you can take one of the companion characters as your player character and you kind of play their sort of their side story or what would be a side story if you met them normally as your like first-hand experience so you actually get to see elements of it you wouldn't get to see if you just encountered them as a companion, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it kind of does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the same system in Divinity Original Sin 2. It just adds a bit of cut, you know, it's like, do you want it to be your own story or do you want to kind of role play as this person who enters the world with their own deal, basically? Hmm. But the, the novel thing with this is that they've, one of the, it's not quite a companion. It's more like a kind of archetype they've created that you can select a player. It's called the Dark Urge. And it's it's basically a if you play this you still build your character they're completely customized um, but they enter the world as an amnesiac and it's heavily employ, applied that they 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 either are or have been a serial killer and have this like very violent urge that you have to fight and so instead of the game being about making good or bad decisions at every turn you know your classic kind of mass effect kind of paragon renegade thing it's actually about managing whatever this unknown urges in you which sometimes bubbles up without your control like you're playing as this character you can you might just randomly kill people that you meet scripted that you'd kill them it's not properly random but you it's scripted that you might murder certain people and it basically like keeps dumping you in these situations where you've done these terrible things and then you basically have to like clean up the mess which i think is really compelling like it's 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 a really interesting way of like making you deal with like the dark evil side of this game if you're someone who would never opt into those moral choices normally which i don't like i'm a total goody two-shoes i'm incredibly boring i've only ever played mass effect as paragon if i replay it i find myself making the same decisions again and again just out of like yeah, it's just just what I do in games. So actually, having someone who makes a few bad decisions on your behalf and then leaves you to kind of tight clean up the mess, like sometimes literally, like you'll have murdered someone. And it's like, 
Are you going to try and hide this body? Are you going to like try and lie to your friends? Are you going to like just ignore it? Like, what are you going to do? And it's it's like being in a series of thrillers where you've woken up in a nightmare scenario and have to kind of like quickly panic your way out of it. I thought it was great. I'm like, this is a this is a really cool like approach to this kind of like moral system. I'm I'm like genuinely think I might play that as my initial playthrough. I'm just really interested to see how far they take it. Yeah, yeah, that is quite interesting. I feel like um. All of the headlines for this, uh, for Baldur's Gate 3, have focused on the fact they brought the release date forward or how much cinematics is in the game. And I wonder if that bothers them, that yeah. people are focusing on that and not, you know, something else. You the, know? the message of this event was like, yes, there's a huge number of cinematics, but that's because there are so many permutations that you need them to support, like, what's probably going to be more like a 70, 80-hour campaign. Still very right. long, but, like, that's that's about what Divinity Original Sin 2 was as well. And it's more like, like whatever, however you choose to play, whatever decisions you choose to make, kind of, we've got you covered, I feel is actually the follow-up to that big cinematic number. It's right. like, this is, like, your safety net is whatever you do, like you're going to have a proper story experience everything's accounted for and i i feel i feel like that they were trying to sort of steer the message more towards that during this event i still keep have to get out of my head that this is something i where i need to have played Baldur's gate one and two to play it no. i know that's not that's not the experience they've made is it no but, not at all like but yeah but i i so it's it's i need to snap into the mindset of in a month i can play an RPG that will probably tick all of my boxes. It's probably yeah. the kind of RPG that I want to play. Something Bioware that's also that has a you know maybe more depth and more flavor to it. And yeah. it's there. It's there waiting for me if I want to. Yeah, you know? I, like that's that's like the that's really the line I think they should be pushing to kind of get it out to people. Like if you're playing with a pad, particularly, it kind of pulls the camera down into more of a more of an over shoulder view. It's still quite zoomed out, but um, like. It looks a little bit more like a Dragon Age, you know? Right. It, from that perspective. It's got this very complex turn-based combat, so it won't move as fast as, like, Dragon Age can move uh, or Mass Effect can move. Um, but, I like, I, no one's doing, like, this level of RPG with this level of production values. Like, that is that Bioware's territory, and Bioware vacated that territory themselves. So... Right. Like, it's kind of larynx for the taking. I, I honestly, like, I think this is going to be one of the best-reviewed games of the year. Like, I I, I, I think this is going to be brilliant. I'm so looking forward to playing it. I cannot wait. I almost wish I'd taken more holiday to play it, but I don't want to keep <laughs> using my holiday to play fucking games because that's just, like, I mean, bad, bad vibes. <laughs> this is quite... First of all, this is quite a year for blockbusters, and this is a blockbuster. They don't... Larian don't seem like they're a blockbuster developer, but they have like offices in a bunch of different countries, and you cannot make something on this scale with these kind of cinematics yeah. without a kind of blockbuster operation. Basically, that's quietly, I think, the sphere they're actually working in. But it maybe doesn't seem like that from the outside looking in. Do you think that's sort yeah? Of fair, I, I think that yeah, I think this is the big step up. You know, they've they've like you know harnessed the interest in Baldur's Gate to like fund this big early access I and mean, it's sold big numbers on early access i think you see numbers getting thrown around by the people who sniff into like steam numbers and things but i think it's already sold like millions of copies you know right, yeah. it's probably maybe paid for itself like it also remember it had it had like a big google stadia push behind it it was like announced alongside stadia <laughs> 
So, like, uh, you think yeah. there's probably a big Google pay check, which doesn't need to be, like, given back now. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, see that check didn't bounce. And, yeah, yeah like, uh, they've used it to, like, f- you know, finance and turn their studio into a studio which does, like, Bioware-level, you know, development. Like, they've had to build this whole cinematics department, motion capture, and, like, there's hundreds, I think there's, like, 500 of them now or something. Like, you know... Yeah, I mean, the, the, what what I'm actually interested in is like, what happens next? What's the what's yeah. the project that you've now got this huge operation? Like, you have to keep operating at this level. Um, yeah. You can't downsize that kind of operation, or you it would be bleak if you did. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, do they just roll straight to the next one? Yeah, or, I mean, is it is it like you know? Yeah, is it <laughs> you know, sort of like a sequel to another? A CRPG classic like Planescape Torment or something. I mean, we we really kind of had one of those, I guess, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, uh... you know, or do do you do the original Baldur's Gate thing of like, you know, Baldur's Gate three ends at level twelve. Do we now build an RPG that takes you to level twenty, which was basically Baldur's Gate two? You know, do we do we? You know, is there another campaign? We won't know until we play this game, and see how open it is. But um, you know, I I'd love it if they did the proper, you know, the proper bioware thing of like let's take a save into the next game like i I always like it when a studio does that yeah for sure so uh yeah okay exciting matthew i mean i'm like actually quite thrown off by just how many big games there are to play this year because i'm I'm already behind like i mean i need to go back to tears of the kingdom that's the thing like that's i don't think you do you know what that game is and what you think about it Well, after I guess I've but it's only twenty eight hours. I still never went underground in that game. Oh right, like this, well, I mean, maybe you should do that. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's more to find for sure. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, it's just there's that. There's Diablo Four, of course, which has like seasons or something. And I'm like, I can't keep up with those seasons. I'm afraid. I'm I hoping I hope you bank the content for those seasons because I'll be joining <sighs> season fourteen at this rate. FF, I will definitely finish. That's like remaining on my list for the yeah. time being. And then we get to the end of the year, and there's like Spider Man Two, and mm. you know, a new Assassin's Creed. I probably won't play some other stuff. I don't know. But um, is there an Xbox game out as well? Starfield. Uh, oh yeah, that's it. Starfield, exactly. So we are just we're looking down the barrel of just so many hours yeah. of game. Like uh, something shorter is very welcome at this point. I, yeah. I think Baldur's Gate Three is like the anti Starfield. It's like a, it's a huge advert for an incredibly authored experience where right. everything is written. Like it's a writer's game. They always put the writers on stage with it. You know, the the challenge of it has been kind of keeping up with all the mad stuff, the kind of variations or whatever the writers have built into it. And that's where the kind of cinematic count comes from. It, it, it's, a, you know, compared to like, you know, procedurally generated empty planets it's it couldn't be more different to that i think so you know it's gonna be a real yeah really interesting to see how those two games like land alongside each other oh i have a really important question about this trip what happened your journey there what happened oh i had a i had a kind of a (laughs) a rough a rough time it was an influencer trip and i didn't know any of the influencers at the train station so i was like you know what i'll just get on the eurostar and um it'll be fine like i'm sure i'll meet up with the group but they i I could tell because we were all in this discord that they are all mates and traveling together so i was a little bit kind of out of sorts because of that and then when we got to brussels uh i got on the wrong train from brussels to ghent um because i was in a half i was like well they're not gonna look after me on this trip i'm just gonna fucking find my own way to ghent which i then (laughs) didn't (laughs) Uh, so uh, yeah i arrived quite late and 
already quite harangued. Um, I was messaging uh, someone back in the office saying, oh, you won't believe this, I got on the wrong train, and they were like, oh, ha, ha, and I was like, it's not a very good story, I'm sure something funny, you know, I, I hope something funnier than this happens on this trip, or, you know, this isn't going to, like, land very well, um, and then I got to the hotel, and when I was checking in, uh, I managed to shatter a very delicate hotel award. <laughs> um, <laughs> they had this, like, glass tear drop. <laughs> Right on their check-in stand, it was a very <laughs> snazzy hotel, very deserving of the award that I broke. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I just knocked it over with my bag. Not a killer story. I knocked it over. It fell over. It snapped in half. Um, and the lady on the till had a. It was like an interesting reaction because she looked. She was clearly like really cross or disappointed, probably more disappointed, but also right. it's the kind of expensive hotel where you have to be really nice and polite to other guests. Yeah. So it was this mix of like, it's fine when it clearly wasn't fine. Um, and it just made me feel bad about the rest, of, not the rest of the trip, but the rest of the hotel. Every time I walked past the desk, I was just, my eye was drawn to like the space with a giant glass tear <laughs> that they were really proud of once sat. Um, you should have gone, look, I'm really sorry about this, but I just had a tooth removed and then showed her the gap in your mouth. That would have like really uh, <laughs> won her over to your cause, Matthew. Um, well, you know, if anything, you could just be like, oh, hey, you know, I'm on a Larian trip. This is one of life's wacky permutations. You yeah, know? it's Whatever. like I failed, like, I failed a very basic kind of competency dice roll <laughs> and fuck that. The worst thing is when it broke, I turned around and there was like one of the influencers standing behind me waiting to check in. And if it was another journalist we would have laughed about it and been like, this is funny that this happened. Like, this is a funny little story that we'll be able to tell later at dinner. Um, but because I didn't know the influencer, they kind of looked at me like, you dumb piece of shit. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It was like, that was very uncool what you just did. <laughs> Where if it was funny, Jeremy yeah. Peel, he would have just, I know that he would have been like, silently laughing at me you know yeah exactly it's uh yeah I, 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 mean, I, I needed a friend there to like break my balls over it to kind of make to, to like release the kind of like guilt of the event but it didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> I've, i remember when i went on my first trip where it was more influencers and journalists it was like an ea trip in 2015 and they i felt so old even though i at the time i was only 27 so i was not i was not old but i felt it in that company because it was all these guys who were probably like two or three years younger than me talking about maybe a bit younger than that actually talking about their on their personas uh, in the um not in the uh, atlas sense right, but in the okay. my my on-screen presence sense in their channels and i thought that is like another another language to me and i knew who none of them were Whereas, like, you know, a bloke with a beard and a rucksack, I'd be like, oh, it's it's this guy from Rock Paper Shotgun or whatever, like, <laughs> which is which is ridiculous. But yeah, and so I can't imagine that you in your late thirties, how old you must have felt in the presence yeah. of like mostly that, that. The name thing's always wild because you're like, do I call this person Ice Wolf or do I call them <laughs> David? <laughs> you know? Yeah, like Mr. Cheese or Bob. You know, that sort <laughs> yeah. <of thing. laughs> um, I though I did. I met I met um, the, the YouTuber Christopher Odd. He's like a big Let's Play YouTuber. Uh, he was great. He was really nice. He was a little bit older as well, so I felt like I I finally was like, oh, good. We you know, there's some kind of common ground here. So it was nice chatting to him, and I did see some journalists. Uh, we had we had a 
a medieval feast, which I was really <laughs> worried about because, you know, obviously I had this big open socket situation going on in my mouth from my tooth removal. And, like, the last thing I wanted to get was some, like, medieval meat stuck in there. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, medieval meat, to me, brings to mind, like, the like an age of, like, bacteria <laughs> where people would die from things like an infected tooth socket. And <laughs> so, you know, there were some, like... I'm quite I'm quite picky about like meats. I like very boring safe meats. So they had like lots of like gristly looking things so I was just like absolutely no chance. It was like chicken and aspic and you know <laughs> things which like fucking Henry VIII would go nuts for. But I'm like, <laughs> uh, have you got any processed ham? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. uh yeah, that's that's funny. I mean, like out of interest, are they going to do anything about the socket? Are they going to put something there? Or is it just well, like empty heal, now it'll forever? It'll heal over and it'll forever be a gap. What, it's not just, they're not going to put like a fake tooth in there well, or you, something? You have to pay extra for that. I've opted out of that. But surely the Patreon will cover that, won't it? That's like surely a good use of Patreon uh, money to get a new tooth put in. I don't know if have a fake tooth. Like, there's something about having a fake tooth seems even like grodier than having no tooth. It's quite sort of piratical. <laughs> what, having no tooth is like better somehow. I mean, come on, like it's not a it's not a peg leg. Do you know what I mean? It's but it's like, a tooth we're... that's very much out of sight. Like it's it's quite far back. You can't see it when I talk naturally. Right. Yeah. But like, what if you go to bite down on it like forever and it's just like a gub? Well, I, like, I don't, like, I just... like, once it's healed up, if I start eating with that side of the mouth, and every bite I take is like agony. If I'm constantly like jamming stuff into my gum, then obviously right. I'll think about having something put in there. But you know, how much my, is it? My how much is it? Said it was, my dentist said it was fine. Um, it's just a bit like you're at a medieval feast and everyone's like ripping into like big bits <laughs> of meat. Like they're like <laughs> holding the meat and tearing it out like Tudors. <gasps> and the whole time it's like, well, I can't do this. So I'm very timidly like nibbling it like a big fucking piece of rabbit or whatever. Like, nim, 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 nim. and then after every bite, having to like surreptitiously wash out my mouth with water to make sure <laughs> I haven't got any rabbit and plums in my fucking <laughs> hole. <laughs> I mean, there's so much to, to laugh at there. So like, I, first of all, I was chuckling at, you're at a medieval feast. It's an anecdote that most people can understand. Like, oh yeah, I find myself at those often. Do you know what I mean? Like that—that <laughs> that is preposterous on one level. That makes me laugh. And the other thing is that I just somehow imagine you turning to an influencer and just going, um, "Can I? Can you hand me that knife so I can cut up this pile of meat into something I can eat?" And then the, <laughs> the same influencer from earlier just look at you like, "You fucking piece of shit," kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, lots to enjoy there, Matthew. What a, a rat, and then rabbit and plum as a thing that you're eating. I That's mean, what that that was the, of all the meats. That was the one I thought <laughs> was the most acceptable. Oh, I tell you where it went really wrong. I thought I was looking there, and there was a big pile of mashed potatoes, and I was right. like, "Bingo, perfect. This is exactly <laughs> what I need. I cannot hurt myself." And I, I, f- I was feeling quite greedy. Other people were taking quite small. Um, spoonfuls of the mashed potato and I was like fuck it ladling onto my plate got back to the table and realised it was it was mushed up apple <laughs> so I you got eat, a kilo of it I had to eat a huge bowl of fucking apple sauce <laughs> oh that is so- <laughs> that's so funny like you could see people looking at it going like man that guy's got a lot of apple sauce <laughs> I mean, I feel like I would be able to observe the physical differences between apple really sauce and like potato. You really like mashed potato tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I just, yeah. I mean, I'd love to see it. I would get if the lighting could have been bad. I don't know. That's so. Just, that's amazing. Yeah, I was eating a lot of like rabbit and apple. I mean, that's a thing. That's a thing I ate a lot of that evening. Yeah, it's oddly comforting knowing that you're like still out there doing this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I just, <laughs> that brings me like, <laughs> brings me great joy to know that you know you're still generating anecdotes, Matthew. That's like that's what I want to hear. You know what I mean? That that's happening. Like that's how we know we're out of the pandemic if you're out there generating <laughs> anecdotes. So, I mean, uh, the terrible thing is because I'm so self-aware. Is there's all with this stuff? There's always this moment of like, oh, I've really fucked this. But there's a tiny bit of my brain that's like. Yeah, good story. I get to tell Sammy. <laughs> you know, like, but there is a little bit of that. But like, I, I'm. Not, I promise. I swear, I am not actively pursuing these things. Like, <laughs> I am. I'm a. You know, I'm quite a shy presence in public. I do not want to draw attention to myself. I do not want to smash glass awards. I do not want to eat several ladles of applesauce. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. Is uh, like is Christopher Odd telling a story on his Baldur's Gate video about like a dude who ate loads of applesauce? Is uh, that he like, skipped uh, the dinner? Yeah. He wasn't there. I mean, so hilarious. The table I was sitting at was um, people from Gamespot and Giant Bomb. Oh yeah. Um. So yeah, I don't know if they were like that guy was weird who like tried <laughs> talking to us about magazines and then ate all the applesauce. <laughs> Whereas to our listeners, they're you know that's part of the course, really. <laughs> yeah, uh, like, yeah, that sounds legit. <laughs> that's good. Like, um, did you not see Jeremy Peel on the trip? Was he on the trip too? He was tweeting about Belgium. He, he left a day early because he was there. There was a journalist day and an influencer day. Ah, that's tough. So he right, was out with the journalists. Um, yeah, they would have understood you, Matthew. Huh? They would have understood you. Your applesauce. They would have laughed about <laughs> the applesauce. Yeah. Um, but I did. Uh, I got to catch up with Adam Smith, formerly of Rock Paper Shotgun, is now lead writer on Baldur's Gate Three. Um, Fucking hell! Always, always nice to to catch up with him. He's a he's a great presence. Like there is a guy who is like living his not just his ideal life, but he's found his ideal place is at that studio writing on this game. Like I've never seen someone so just perfectly slotted in i wish it for everyone that everyone may one day find their perfect place yeah i hate it when i get offered uh, narrative design jobs when i work in games media happened all the time always <laughs> turning those down matthew but uh yeah i know what you mean like he's he's uh such a like a. It's, I can see why that job is so precisely perfect for him. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, good for him. Yeah, it's, no, it's uh, good. Very, yeah. Ni- very, they're, very they're, nice man. Yeah, and they're doing they're doing really good work as well. So, yes, no jealousy, only good vibes. <laughs> <laughs> no jealousy on air, only good vibes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. nice to talk to these former colleagues, and they're like, how are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, everything's going great, as I shovel in my 10th tablespoon of fucking <laughs> applesauce. <laughs> I have a podcast about my uh, former glories that's moderately successful. Um, how are you doing? I'm lead writer on Baldur's Gate 3. Well, fuck. See you later. Uh, no, that's good. Um, that's Yeah, that's, that's funny. Did you, you met some fairly notable uh, Giant Bomb and um, GameSpot per- people, though, right? You sound like some fairly interesting people. Maybe our listeners might be interested yeah, yeah, in this. Uh, yeah, I was sitting next to, well, I was sitting next to a, a guy from a Belgian games man, which is always nice to meet people who like print still exists in other countries. Yeah. Um, and you're like, hey, good, good for them. Um, but yeah, uh, Dan Reichart was there from Giant Bomb, who I and formerly Game Informer, who you know I've never never met on a trip. I'm like, you know, obviously aware of his work, and um, yeah, it's always always interesting to to talk to these people a little bit. You sort of switch into like, 
you know, can I befriend this person and get them on the podcast <laughs> in the course of this dinner? Um, but the applesauce kind of like, I was like, this isn't, this isn't going to happen here. <laughs> when you're on Spoon 10, you were like, nah, this is done. This is cooked. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm still eating this applesauce. It's like, he's not coming on this podcast. But yeah. Uh, that's cool. That's, that's good. I think that this, that will end up being the highlight of this podcast, that whole bit, Matthew. Oh, so, good. Uh, well, I'm glad. I'd yeah. forgotten about the applesauce bit. I was a bit worried that the uh, the breaking the, the glass tier was, was a little underpowered because it just fell over. <laughs> like, it, you know, it... it it didn't like spiral in any interesting way, which was disappointing right. from an anecdote perspective. Yeah, are you at Gamescom this year? Yes. Yeah. Oh, cool. So am I. I mean, I'm working there, obviously, industry side, but um, you know, so yeah, it's uh, yeah, just uh, just wondering about um, again, like uh, ability to create anecdotes abroad, um, potentially <laughs> yes. both in the same place. Um, I have to make sure I see you out there at some point. That might be fun. So uh, yeah, we can go and eat some beige meats together and drink Ooh. a tiny average beer um, <laughs> yes. called a Kolsch <laughs> and uh, and celebrate how tiny they are because that's what you do at Gamescom. Yep. So very good. So Matthew, should we take a quick break and come back with some listener questions? Let's do it. I genuinely forgot the applesauce until, until I was like, oh, yeah, that was good. That was funny. That happened. Yeah, I'm pleased to be reversed into that. Because it was the sense of, like, ha-ha, suckers, I'm having all the mash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. Yeah, that was the, the tier. Once the, the award story was over, I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll just keep probing and see what else I can find out about his trip. So, yeah. There we go. Okay. Back into it, then. Welcome back to the podcast. So we have been threatened with some listener questions and now we're going to go through them. So um, yes, Matthew, shall I start with this first one? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Hello, Sam and Matthew. First off, thanks for all your dedicated podding. They're often a highlight of my week and I always enjoy your insights and humour. Oh, I can't believe I was slagging off the listeners when they're this yeah, nice. This, is good. this letter's <laughs> great pretty... so far. Yeah, there's that Butterbeans guy as well on uh, Patreon who gave us that quite life-affirming message about mm. the Indiana Jones episode, and I was like, fuck yeah, this is this is good, I feel good now. After hearing your excitement for IO Interactive tackling the Bond license, I was wondering if you had any dream pairings of a game studio in a particular license. What creative team seemed perfectly suited to a given IP? For myself, I'd love to see Supergiant make an X-Men game. They're great at handling a large cast of offbeat characters with a lot of heart, and I think their art team would have some fresh and stylish takes on modern... Uh, sorry, on iconic X-Men characters. Side note, why has it taken so long since we've had an X-Men game? Thanks, and keep up the good work. That's from Dankle Tear. Uh, yeah, I think we may have been asked this one before, Matthew, in like some different form, but it's mm. probably been a while since we discussed it. Does anything obvious come to mind for you? Yeah, I, f- I have a feeling, last time this came up, I said exactly what I'm about to say now, which is mm. I would like to have a Mission Impossible game from Me, Me, Me Games. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Does yeah, that ring a bell? A great show. Um, it does, it's, it's a great shout. But, you know kind of stealth leaning but also cooperation between the team where you can because it's a real-time sort of strategy game you can sort of send out a real-time strategy tactics game or whatever they call it you can send out different team members and coordinate their moves um i just want a mission impossible game i would also take a mission impossible game from io um who definitely can do like the level environmental like art design that you want from that kind of the film universe that mission impossible exists in but mate, that's basically the same as a Bond film, right? 
So yeah, yeah, I suppose it's kind of similar, but uh, yeah, no, I like that. That's cool. I for this one, I did like. I wonder, wonder if I've said this one before as well. But I um, I've gone for like Evangelion RPG by the Persona devs because oh, no, this this doesn't ring a bell. I, I might have mentioned Evangelion as like a something I'd like to see more games of before. But and I, I think asked you if the robots were made of meat or something. Some bullshit like that. Yeah, yeah. like uh, this this podcast is in an endless tragic cycle, much like the Evangelion saga itself, according to one fan theory. Anyway, um, very so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so the the reason I think this fits is because you do have like big mechs to do sort of cool fights. Basically, there is that that aspect to it, but. A big part of the appeal of the original anime is the interplay between the three different characters. I think if you did an RPG, you'd have to cast the net a bit wider because there's a finite number of like um, angels that the Evangelion, the sorry, the big mon- the big uh, AV units are fighting in that, that series. So once they're gone, the game is basically over. You could have them as your bosses, and then they could be uh, I don't know some kind of like more casual sort of like disposable opponents for them to fight also. But because each of the mechs are just so visually distinctive, they have slightly different power sets, that sort of thing, and so much was made of like the the characters' interactions in school outside of that. I think that could work pretty well, and it's just such a it's like one of also the anime the what one anime that's like successful enough you could just for like a big investment in it and make it visually spectacular i think so mm. yeah and there is like quite a checkered history of games based on this property and the success of the um the sort of rebuild movies they did suggest that there's a there's a lot of life left in exploring this universe so that's my take that's my take matthew mm. i think that would be quite good i echo the um x-men thing i think that uh, my friend Dave is convinced that that Insomniac game will lead to a universe of different X-Men games. I'm not so convinced. I think the hmm. Wolverine thing is a very specific kind of pitch of like Wild Westy sort of like lone warrior sort of villain. Uh, sorry, hmm. guy, um, anti-hero who um, maybe have him meet a few X-Men along the way, but I don't think it's then going to turn into like you're at a school in the next game with a bunch of other dudes. I think that's um, <laughs> something quite different. They're pitching more in the Logan mold. But uh hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think that with X Men, you'll probably see them try more when they they finally do like some kind of MCU film. Um, that's mm. assuming the entire MCU enterprise hasn't burnt down by the time they get to X Men, which I'm not ruling out to be honest after watching Secret Invasion. So um, let's see how that goes. So, super giant X Men though, that speaks to me. I'd like that. Yeah, because as well, because I can imagine them doing like the '90s animated series um, yeah. character designs. That could really that would really pop, wouldn't it? So mm. yeah, I think the potential's there um uh, i suppose like a really obvious one is they keep um mentioning the idea of a john wick game i suppose like remedy would be good for that but um you know i, I don't i don't need that necessarily i think like the max pay one two remakes they're gonna do will probably scratch that itch for me mm. so uh yes um okay you want to read out the next question matthew? hello big sammy and matthew castle I liked the discussion of spoilers in the latest mailbag pod and the desire not to have plot twists etc blown in advance is obviously reasonable and correct, thank you. But has this instinct ever conflicted with your need to review a game? I sometimes find reviews that are too wary of spoiling the reader, too cryptic to be really helpful or interesting, and I sometimes wish outlets had come back a month later for a full warts and all critical, critical set too with a game that was too sensitive to spoil upon release. How have you navigated this tension in your games journalism careers? Matthew's desire to go into Tears of the Kingdom knowing nothing would obviously have been a difficult one in his O&M days. Do you protect the reader with the same level of care you'd want for yourself? Or pull apart every trailer and screenshot for mag-selling insights? That's from Serrano. Yeah, I never quite knew how to tackle this. I think that 
probably the way to go about it is like to discuss the impact of something and lose to what it is without actually giving the game away the one of the cardinal sins i committed was with the original modern warfare is that i did big spoiler tags and i did discuss the nuclear thing and the nuclear bomb going off in my review because um i think we were out like several weeks after the game was mm. but i think i think there was like it, at the time I, I remember i got like slammed on old ancient um industry blog uh, ram raider and um, I'm convinced that the person who submitted me and that review for that has come on this podcast before. That's one of my uh, really, <laughs> yeah. That's one of my like oh um, my, my theories. It's like a murder yeah. mystery. <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> But I remember I was a couple of times I was called out on Ram Raider when I was a staff writer. I was like 19 or 20, and I thought, that's a bit unfair to call me out on an industry blog when I'm just fucking new to this shit. But whatever. It was a different age. So, but in retrospect, I don't know, actually. Like, it might actually, that knowing that might make you buy it if you weren't otherwise going to be interested in it. If you're like, oh, yeah, Nuke goes off halfway through this game, and then, like, a, a, the main character, one of the main characters dies, and it all happens in first person like that that might make me more interested than I otherwise would be. So arguably there's some kind of reader function to that. And we have become so spoiler-averse. Like, I didn't even really know what Final Fantasy XVI was about until I played that demo. But if it was like, the mystery of of this is is basically for the first part of the game is who killed your brother? That's the that's the mystery, right? So it's sowing that seed. But I think that's a, I think that's a more interesting thing to say to a game spying public than... Oh, we don't know what it is. There's a bunch of summons and there's a big epic story. And you know what I mean? Like, you talk around it. But if somebody pitches that to you, you're like, oh, well, that's actually a little bit unusual. I don't think I've seen that in a Final Fantasy before. Mm. So it is a fine line. I think maybe we are, maybe we can be so spoiler reverse, we talk ourselves out of just saying what's exciting about a thing. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Matthew? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd just go back to the magazine days. Like, fundamentally, people were buying, they were opting in to knowing about something. So, like, they're, they're open to hearing something about the game. So, you know, at, you know, you brought up the my desire not to go into Tears of the Kingdom. That's because I was in the very rare position to be, like, not covering it in any way, shape, or form. So, yeah, I was like, I'll commit to this and go in not knowing anything. I wouldn't say that's necessarily, like, like the idea... You know, on the mags, I, I, you know, I didn't mind finding out what I found out beforehand. Um, yeah, the art of these is, you know, boringly still trying to convey convey your take without undermining you know surprises that struck you and if something if i was reviewing something and thought oh well i wouldn't have wanted that spoiled for myself then i wouldn't spoil it for someone else but at the same time i am writing for someone who's fundamentally wants to hear about a thing so you know you, you can't go overboard um you know it's there's a there's just a there is a, a, a middle line in there which i don't know you just instinctually learn to tread um yeah. it makes me laugh seeing people when you mentioned nukes there it made me think of like people saying oh i don't want oppenheimer spoiled for me and <laughs> be like what <laughs> like what do you think this film has to tell you like it's it's autobiographical like i mean maybe in like the approach but you know are there people who are like going into that film they're generally like oh man i, ho- I hope he doesn't become death destroyer of worlds <laughs> <laughs> yeah Whereas, like, with Barbie, who knows where it could go, Matthew? It could go anywhere. That reference alone will date this podcast massively, actually. If people discover this in a year and they hear the fucking Barbenheimer bullshit, they'll be yeah. like, oh, my I'm God. Sorry, that's I, didn't, so... I didn't mean to drag us into that territory. No, 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 no that's fine. But it's interesting because the film podcast we listen to, they do a spoiler section in their reviews after they've talked around the general shape of the film. And I think that over time, criticism has evolved to that point where 
the review is just one part of it and then like the spoiler discussion comes later and i think that probably is the most elegant way to handle it you know so yeah yeah. and like you know the cliche of you know your relationship with the game doesn't end with the review you know we'd still cover these things we'd go back you would do like your long plays or whatever different mags call them you know you're you're constantly discussing them i'd say that that's the space for slightly more nuanced stuff to kind of unfold over the coming months yeah for sure uh, so, Matthew, I had no answer to this next one. Did you have one? Okay, next question. Hello, large folk. After the discussion of spoilers, it got me thinking, what are the wildest fake spoilers you've heard in your time? I'm reminded of a guy at school whose dad ostensibly worked for Sony and was helping with Metal Gear Solid. He had half of my mates convinced he could put sugar in the fuel of Re- Vulcan Raven's <laughs> tank and skip that fight always uh, altogether. Always be podding, mad brood. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't have an answer to this one. Um, I think I did discuss before, like... The um the kid at my school who bullshitted about like being able to save Aerith and Final Fantasy and also gold material and he learned it from a wise old man at a games convention. Oh, right, it was yeah. like a, cl- a classic bit of like kid bullshit, basically just like kid li- kids lying about nonsense. Um, did you have one for this, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, you know, the classic naked Lara Croft was like a big one that everyone everyone had a different take on like which gymnastics routine would make her take off all her clothes um you know even you're a horny 13 year old that's what that's the kind of stuff you're into um I once told an absolutely terrible fib where I made up a load of command and conquer red alert at units from an expansion uh based on some sprites that I saw in an advert for another expansion I just oh, I looked at that. them and imagined what they'd do and then told loads of my mates about it. And then I think one of them got the expansion and was like, well, none of that stuff was in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a really weird one, that. But that, these are the sorts of lies you tell when you're a kid, just yeah, weird stuff. Yeah, you just want something has... to say at lunchtime. And you're like, oh, have you heard about like the fucking Tesla tank or whatever? And they're like, well, what? that's it. <laughs> well, there is a Tesla tank in Red Alert's um, expansions, Matthew, so that one was true. Um, oh, well, maybe, you know, a lo- maybe this liar gets lucky every once in a while. <laughs> a tank that shoots bees at you. Um, <laughs> a tank that fires Joseph Stalin at you. Like, <laughs> I love the idea of making up Red Alert, ta- Red Alert units. That's quite fun to me now. Um, yeah. yeah, a shoot that just drops engineers um, out of the back I, of a, a tank, you know. I will say Kojima missed a trick by not letting you pour sugar into the... The fuel of Vulcan Raven's tank. I just like the idea that Metal Gear Solid, you pick up a bag of sugar. <laughs> and you're like, what the fuck's this for? You're like, well, no one ever worked it out, but if you pour it into that tank. <laughs> well, I like, that's kind of like the immersive, if it was an immersive sim approach, isn't it? It's like, well, you see, if you find Vulcan Raven's gun early in the game and put sugar in there, by the time you come to fight him, it explodes and kills him. Like, it's the old Deus Ex kind of like um, kill switch thing, isn't it? If so, you hold uh, on to that bag of sugar for the whole game, you can just punt it <laughs> into um, Liquid Snake's face at the end. Well, it's not that random when you think about some of the weird shit you carry around in <laughs> yeah. that game, I suppose. So, uh, yeah, it kind of works. Um, okay, do you want to read this next one, Matthew? Good day, larger than life, lads. I can't remember if this has been asked previously, but here goes anyway. What would you consider to be your finest piece of work in games media? It doesn't have to be the most popular, but a piece that you personally felt was your absolute best. That's from Just Kai. The, probably like the most... The idea of something I wanted to to write more of and then never had time for on PC Gamer in the second half of my games uh, media career, basically, was uh, I wrote a piece on um, where I interviewed a bunch of devs about the idea of games... Do games respect your time enough? And... I one of the devs I interviewed has become very contentious since then, so it's not a piece I relink very often. Um, but I also interviewed like one of the developers of the 
uh, XCOM's to stop wasting my time mod and there was like one other developer in there and it's just like asking experts about a thing because I, it was I was thinking about everything from like pointless animations to the way that like games that time has become the currency of open world games how it's about your time investment and keeping you engaged and and how much the idea that the idea of like do developers think about do they respect your time enough and the decisions they make basically so that I think came out really well and I was like it was it was even linked in I think in the um rock paper shotgun Sunday papers thing which is you know it's always a good sign that you've got peer respect when uh, mm. Graham Graham Smith leaps you drops you into one of those so that comes to mind um I think one of my probably my most read piece ever that isn't like a an SEO best Netflix shows list was um <laughs> uh Sekiro has ruined all other right. action games for me um for PC gamer so the headline is a bit over the top but it was a point about it was a piece about how the combat in that game the third person combat was so sophisticated that I just couldn't get that rush from anything else and um in retrospect I wonder why I didn't think more about jedi fallen order it's probably because i didn't think that was actually anywhere near as good as sekiro that's you know i think the second one is a lot better so um i probably would say that's slightly more comparable to it and i've you know with final fantasy 16 we have yet another game with extremely strong intricate third person combat in it so Mm. you know i'm I'm quite well catered for these days but that piece was read by hundreds of thousands of people maybe even millions i'm not sure so that those two pieces jump out to me as like me at my best i guess matthew what about you uh yeah, I, a lot of stuff that I loved, even I've talked about loving on this podcast, I've gone back to and have been like, ugh. <laughs> Seems a bit off. Um, even though people disagree with it, I'm quite proud of the Skyward Sword review in Edge. Do um, people disagree with that one? They don't bring it up very often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was really pleased with the Breath of the Wild review that I did for Games Raider. I was like, I really thought I, I nailed that one. I was just super pleased with that as a piece of writing. So, like not not traditional writing, but some of the writing I did for videos for RPS, you know, when stuff really landed and people loved it. Like I'm, I'm I, I was like my first video, which really went big on the channel, was uh, did a my Forza Horizon Four review. Uh, I was really really proud of that. Uh, my flights, I've my biggest video I ever did on the channel was flight simulator video, which I think's about about to cross a million views on YouTube. Um, which that it it wasn't just the writing, but like I also edited it. You know, I did a lot of my own editing on that. So that that as a complete thing, I was really proud of. Um, more recently, I mean, so this is a bit of an ego trip now. I was like, I don't like any of it, and he lists off a thousand fucking things. Um, <laughs> uh, I actually thought the right the 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 non-video writing I did for RPS, I just thought was I I just hit my stride on that site. I just felt like I had a the right tone of it. Uh, I was really pleased with my Gears Five review on there. Weirdly, that's one that stands out as something I was like, "Yeah, that was a that was a good review." And some of my recent Edge reviews, which I obviously won't reveal all of them because the anonymity and all that. But um, I think stuff that I've done for Edge since since I left RPS, I've, particularly some of the earlier bits, where I was feeling quite down and quite lacking in confidence after the whole redundancy thing, and. Yeah, I just reviewed a couple of biggish stuff, biggish things for them that I just felt like I don't know. I kind of, kind of got back into my groove and felt like, oh, I can still do this, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a, a redundancy should never be taken personally, of course. Yeah, you know, but it like was. I don't know. The, ev- I the events industry melted down. It just burned down overnight, and then you know yeah, that's it. But so you do feel a little bit like also because I felt like I I grew quite baggy doing video writing. 
because right, right. it's it's writing you know it's it's written to be said out loud it doesn't it's not quite read in the same way it's not intended to be you know read as a as a as a piece of writing normally is um so i'd worried that i'd kind of like lost you know i'd i'd, I'd lost some of that that spark but um yeah, that was satisfying. I did the because I did like, one of them is I did the Edge Cyberpunk review, and I was really pleased with that. I thought I really nailed that game. So, yeah, ah, oh, so yeah, that's good. I mean, I, the the more pertinent point maybe is that like the amount of self loathing that you have as a writer in yeah. games media about stuff that you wrote that you you maybe thought was good at the time, and you go back and you're like, oh, I fucking hate this. It's like like ninety nine percent of my work. So I wouldn't read a single article. I wrote at Imagine at all, and like I wouldn't go back to them at all because I thought whenever I've gone back to even my games TM work, I was like, why are my sentences so fucking long? Like just all that kind of stuff. <laughs> that is honestly most of it is self-loathing, so it's good to balance it out by just pointing that out. I think just be like, look, most of it you feel like is rubbish inside. So when something does seem good, it is kind of miraculous. So uh, yeah, 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 it's yeah. okay. I've, oh, yeah. I already feel bad about saying those things that I liked. Yeah. That seemed very indulgent. Nah, not at all. People people get it, man. It's all good. Uh, so is this next one? Yes, yeah, me, isn't it? Uh, good morning, fully-sized fellows of Bath. Hearing of the upcoming Star Trek Resurgence game, that game is now out. That's how long it's been since we did a mailbag. <laughs> <laughs> get excited, then disappointed. It's basically a telltale game. That's fine. Just not really what I was hoping for. It makes me wonder why there are so few really noticeably good Star Trek games. I'm aware of Bridge Commander and a few niche offerings. Firstly, why so few? And secondly, what would be the best game that should be made of Star Trek? My vote is for a big RPG. That's from Fortis Leo. Um, Matthew, my answer to this one was very simple. I feel like Trek has never had that next level of popularity needed to justify a monster investment in a blockbuster game. Mm. Um, I mean, it was quite pricey, the 2013 one they made that people didn't like, developed by Digital Extremes. It was based on the movies. That was a pricey game, but it wasn't very good. So... Yeah, I think with Star Wars, it's easy to make the case um, for like you know, you know, building something as epic as that Outlaws game that yeah, they're making yeah. at Ubisoft. Star Trek, I just don't think is is that as popular. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I do. That's fair. I do have an answer for this though. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I would actually, I, I, I love Star Trek: First Contact, uh, the film where the Borg take over the ship. I think doing that that scenario, so it's set just on board the ship. And it's kind of a take-back-the-ship-style game. I think you could do quite a fun, like, immersive sim, you know, basically prey in that ship, single location. Because it always has that, like, we're locking down this bit of the ship and we're locking down... There's it, there's different functions to bits of the ship. I'd love to go in and fuck around with all the holodecks. Um, I think it doesn't have to be the scale of, like, you're going around space and doing space battles. That's the side of Star Trek I like, is the kind of boots on the ground but on the ship. Yeah, that's that's quite good. The idea of dialing in on one thing. I mean, I think the um, there's like a, a paradox published grand strategy game in the works that yeah. are based on Star Trek. Like, I think that is actually quite close to what probably people, probably Trek fans want from is a game they, like that. Don't I suppose the, then you lose the pe- the, the, like the, the the human level, which is like you know, so well, much depends. of it is about a group of people in these situations rather than just the situation. Well, I guess it depends on how they handle like your dynamics with the yeah. crew. It's like maybe it's a more involved kind of like multiple choice crew conversations. Because the other thing I was going to say was, of course, that arguably Mass Effect is the closest thing to a Trek game, right? It has the go to a new world and stories happen element yeah. of the of the but series. So with a crew that you like, you know, maybe then what I want is like really f- silly Mass Effect 
which has a space where you do all that. You go down to the planet and you discover the kind of the little sci-fi story that's playing out there. But I also want the game to be able to do the everyone ate a weird berry and then they all change and now we're all in each other's bodies, you know? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I want to do, like, have you seen this week's Strange New Worlds? No, I've not seen season two yet. Is it good? Yeah, it's fun, but like, I, I, I don't know if it's the episode. It's just that I just, or I just saw a tweet about it. Like, there's, there's an episode coming up which is like Spock wakes up and he's human, and you're like, yeah, okay, I'm in. <laughs> you know, I want, I, I want to play their mission in the game, which is that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or like the uh, interminable um, sort of like acting out a kid's uh, story. Yeah. Uh, one. That was the only bad episode of Strange New World season one. But like, um, yeah, I like the idea that the role, the total roll of the dice, it might be really serious. It might be really dark. Yeah, like, could, oh, this is yeah. the mission where it's like actually a really scary horror mission. And this next one's just like a funny personality lad piece. That'd be cool. Yeah, in theory, the Resurgence game, I mean, it kind of came and went a little bit, but I was sort of, in theory, I was quite up for it. I yeah. thought it looked quite nice. I think and, I might go yeah. back to play that, actually. I, I, this question has reminded me, like, that was meant to be okay. Yeah, if it's like, if I can get it on sale, I'll, I'll pick that up. That sounds like my yeah something I would enjoy. So, mm. yeah. Um, okay, you want to read this next one, Matthew? Hi, Samuel Matthew. Just a short question from me. What's the worst example of cinema etiquette you've ever experienced? Cheers. That's from Angry Kurt. Angry Kurt. Yes. Yeah, so um, the uh, one that sticks in my memory after like 11 years is um, two old blokes who just had a constant conversation during Lawless starring Tom Hardy. Um, (laughs) And it was just so obnoxious and like they just did not care about anyone else and they just talked over the whole film. And I did nothing about it. I just sat there impotently raging with my ex-girlfriend while she just like was slightly embarrassed how angry I was. And yeah, that that sort of stands out. Um, I think like um, I remember I think some teenagers got thrown out of like uh, Wally, um, because they were talking over it, and it was like, "This is not the film to talk over, you twats." So those come to mind, but you know, um, Matthew, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I've mostly lived in posh places where people are really well behaved in cinemas. <laughs> yeah. Um, my friend Martin was absolutely convinced um, that there was a dude cranking it in the cinema with us <laughs> when we went to see uh, Lars von Trier's Antichrist. <laughs> Yeah, a film, a notoriously crankworthy film. So, uh, wow. That's oh, a amazing. film, yeah, a film in which William Defoe gets his bits smashed in with a log. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredibly cursed. So, yeah, um, what was the. Were you there for that screening yeah, too, Matthew? I, yeah, I was. Yeah, I, I can't say I noticed it. Um, yeah. But. Yeah, that's because I was so immersed in Lars von Trier's vision. Yeah, it's sort of like, it's not ideal to crank it to any Lars von Trier film, really. Oh, I would it's say like... any film full stop. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, not not, not in a public place. I just mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. This is not a horny podcast. No, no, no. Like, Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. That that was a bad, a bad cul-de-sac for that question. Um, thanks, Kurt. <laughs> Uh, okay, is there anything in gaming you wouldn't be able to do now? Mine was being able to get five stars on this DJ Hero track on Expert back in the day. There was an image with this post that I cannot replicate for you on the podcast, right. but it's just a screenshot from DJ Hero. You fucking get it. Um, I'd have no chance now. That's from Rich Spurs 24 uh, Matthew, my really quick answer to this is I don't think I'm that old, and I can hold my own in like first-person shooters still, um, but it's um, doing Elite B Agents on hard mode. My fingers are probably too fucked to hold that stylus and do that again. Like, that, that is beyond me now. What about you? Uh, I, I, I just, I've always been average at games. If anything, because games have got slightly easier and more accessible over time, I've gotten better at games because right. average is now, like, 
you, you, you know, you need to be less than average to finish most things. So I'm doing absolutely fine. Thank you. <laughs> okay, excellent. Uh, Want to read this next one, Matthew? I have yes. no answer to this one, actually. <laughs> uh, howdy, large lads. Shamefully nicked this question from another pod, but in all your time playing games, is there anything which you have learned in a game and then taken that into your everyday life? That's from Grower17. No, I don't have any. I didn't have an answer to this, really. Sometimes I think like games embed things in your head where you're walking around and then you see the world in a slightly different way. But actually learning things i don't i don't know if there's much to take away from all the bullshit i've played over the years like uh yeah it's not like i i did the zelda trading quest and i was like if i take these bananas i can trade them for whatever like it's yeah no answer to this one matthew what about you uh no i've maybe like repeated some facts or anecdotes that i've heard in like wordier or nerdier visual novels right the zero escape games have got like a lot of like little science lessons in i'm not gonna say that i learned about um Oh, I've completely forgotten the name of it. What's the thing where you've got an AI in a room and it tries to trick you into it being a human? <laughs> the Turing test. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. very good. Yeah. yeah. Um, like little things, you know, you kind of take little things like that and maybe repeat them because you heard them in a game, but um, not really. The only... Yeah. Uh, we, I often say, in our, in our house, we both often... And this is not the, the answer to this question, but we often say thank you in the style of beadle from the, the zelda games <laughs> you know that's in the Wind waker in his little boat where he goes thank yeah. you yeah okay good that's uh no surprise with your household of fucking yeah. monster weebs um but yeah um that's good i uh, i suppose like there's a little bit of like virtual tourism that creeps over into the real world so the rough layout of new york i kind of remember from gta 4 basically i'm like well okay <laughs> so i know central park's got me here so i know that Times square is a little bit um just below that or whatever or above that i can't even remember now but when you're there spatially i can kind of remember where all the different bits of new york are or tedious bullshit like um going to rome and pointing out to my ex-girlfriend they're like oh yeah i, I remember this i played assassin's creed you jump through that hole in the top of this fucking building and then you land on a dude and like her just being completely unimpressed by that so uh, yeah I, um, some okay of my, next so, some yeah. of my historical grasp of things is based on like history as it was in games so like metal gear solid 5 is definitely responsible for like you know soviets in the middle east a lot yeah or it's like when you look up like like Lubu was like a real dude or whatever and you're like no you were you were just a meme my friend that's like your legacy <laughs> or whatever so uh yes. yeah uh <laughs> okay this next one matthew do whose turn is it yours or mine uh, all right greetings giant gents with alan wake 2 being a high profile digital only release i wondered if you fear the death of physical games <laughs> are you mostly digital these days or do you have a shelf of cases you can watch grow over the course of a console's life what would you miss the most if publishers do away with discs i'm of the opinion that society peaked when GameStation had their four for 20 quid range that's from g jones 86 <laughs> yeah so i do like physical games i uh, particularly on switch i think that they're very very collectible physical games on switch and they you know, you have the whole game on the cart still. Whereas on PS5 and Xbox, it feels more and more like it's a ceremonial token to download yeah. like 19 different updates. So I don't admittedly have the same connection to my physical collections of PlayStation and Xbox games that I used to, which is a shame, but uh, inevitable, I think. So yeah, yeah I, I prefer games to get a physical release. So I've got multiple options to buy them, but um, I suppose it's not a total deal breaker for me, Matthew. 
Yeah, I mean, like, my collection is so fucked and all over the place in terms of formats and styles that, like, I, you know, I just, I don't really care, to be honest. You know, some <laughs> things you kind of cover because you're like, oh, the case looks nice or the, the art looks nice or whatever, or, or I know that this is going to be an all-timer. Like, I've got physical versions of, like, some first-party games. But, like, if you saw the state, my, it's my Switch collection because I've had, like, Switch review codes. Yeah. Some of them are digital. Some of them are, like, on a special review account like they're not even all on the same account my switch collection is like a a state it's all over the place um so yeah probably the like the weirder shit i do is like get paranoid about the switch eShop being turned off and then think about oh should i buy physical versions of animal crossing and xenoblade chronicles to finish edition just so i have them in case like there's some kind of apocalypse or whatever that's the that's probably the maddest like shit i do in Um, relation to this question a lot of the physical games i do have i must admit i threw away the boxes and just kept the discs yeah i kind of get that it's just like they they sort of mount up don't they yeah i just uh, i'm at that point in my life where it's like i need the shelf space for my japanese mysteries (laughs) (laughs) okay um on that note then we move on to the next question Dear larger-than-life lads, I'm in the apparent minority of people who prefer PS4 and PS5-style controllers to Xbox. I'm a simple man. I prefer the thumbsticks at the front because that's where my thumbs are. They're all on the front. <laughs> it's a very good point, actually. What was he talking about there? Does he mean like... No, in I don't know middle? what he means, actually. In the front yeah, and in the middle? But there's not that much in it. Yeah, they're slightly further down, I suppose, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, where was it? Where was I? Um... What is your favourite historical and current gamepad? That's from John. So personally, Matthew, I feel like the 360 controller perfected it. That's pretty a pretty widely held view. It was just it had everything in the right place. The D-pad was rubbish, but everything else was great. Yeah, it just um, just fit nicely around it. And uh, on that note, to be honest, I, with the modern age, I don't really have much of a preference between PS5 and Xbox. They're both very good controllers. I, I guess I'm not sure where I stand with that. The big vague PS5 button that's in the middle, the big white one. The I feel like pad. that's. Yeah, that's like I just need a button for that. I don't need that to be like a vague kind of concept button. Like I'm, I'm good without that. I, dog. I, the, I really hate the uh, options button on the PlayStation one. That's the, the the tiny little one that's to the right of the the touchpad. Like if you have yeah. to press that button a lot for like maps or menus in a game or whatever, I'm probably going to be grumpy about it. Yeah, that doesn't bother me really. It's just yeah, I think like they've all got good triggers, they've all got good bumpers, they're all kind of doing what they need to do. So my, yeah, but um, yeah, my ha 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 sickos, whatever that meme is, <laughs> take yeah. is that I quite like the um, Switch Pro controller. Oh, okay, interesting. It's yeah, like super it's... generic, but like I just that I just got used to that thing. Yeah, I sort of like I my my slightly sickos thing is the um, <laughs> plugging the uh, Joy Cons into that like little controller oh. thing. They give you. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I quite like that. Well, I because I'd never used it before, but obviously for Tears of the Kingdom, no. I was like, well, I've got to play. It. <laughs> no, that That's too, too far for you. They're too close. It's too small. Like your hands are. Oh no. I don't mind, but then to be honest, I like the Duke on the Xbox. I'm a right fucking sicko oh, for this okay. shit. So let's move on anyway. Um, we read the next one, Matthew. Yes, um, this is a short one. What games do the best at tutorialising? <laughs> From Blinky. I have one very simple answer to this. The Titanfall 2, like, uh, tutorial that then gives you a sort of, like, power run at the end to get the best time. Mm. And, like, it, it's, da- it's, it's downloading. You're playing it while the rest of the game's downloading. That is fucking tip-top. That stands out as a tutorial to me. What about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the introduction to Portal, where obviously the whole game's framed as, like, test subject... You know, that's a fun way of, like, narratively tying your tutorial in. Um, 
maybe people disagree with this, but like the idea of the Great Plateau in Breath of the Wild being like the whole game in miniature, I've always thought that was that was super cool. Even though you have to like find the tutorials in it, I guess is maybe a pain in the ass. But solid yeah. answers there, I think. What's the best thing you've seen under embargo slash NDA? How did you keep it under wraps until you could talk about it? Some beta max bandit. What about you, Matthew? Uh I mean, does this count for just like review games that we played? Like. Yeah, I suppose so, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I guess, play like, reviewing Breath of the Wild on the Switch, but, you know, before the Switch and Breath of the Wild were out, like, the idea of being in an office and thinking, I've got a Switch at home, that's exciting, and no one knows or gets to know that I've got this thing. Um, mm. Yeah, that was it. I mean, whenever you're, like, the first, like, first in the world to play or review something, for that brief window of time you're the only person who really knows what it's like to play that game and you're like desperate to tell people but uh i guess that's probably it yeah i briefly had a moment there where i was like uh i had a ps pre-release ps4 that i took home to my flat in bournemouth and i was a bit like oh this feels very high stakes what if i get mugged right while i'm walking while i'm walking past a chinese takeaway on the way home or something like it's um, there's that, but probably the easiest answer to this is definitely something I've discussed before, but probably not for a while. Was um, what became the Last Guardian and was previously known as Project Trico. I'd not seen it, but um, my uh, my old boss had seen it and described it to me, and then a PR from Sony also described it to me. And this was like at least a year before they revealed it, and right. they were like the idea of like the the follow up game to Shadow of the Colossus as a thing you couldn't see but someone could describe to you was something it's something i thought about all the time i was like it's like this dog thing and then there's like but is it a cat and then it's got these like there's like this little kid with him and it kind of looks like shiko shadow classes i remember it being described that way and i bit i was just being like i have to fucking see this game and so you know when it did finally emerge it was like oh it's no longer this secret i can keep to myself but i didn't keep it to myself i told my friend andrew at the time because i was a scumbag um staff writer (laughs) but uh that's fine it didn't leak i wouldn't tell anyone secret things now but uh yeah um so yeah there you go matthew um i think that covers it doesn't it so uh next question uh hi samuel and matthew after the recent news of Naughty Dog's Last of Us Factions multiplayer not passing Bungie's quality test, I think that was a Bloomberg article, it got me thinking, do you think there is a future for online multiplayer games that aren't live service games, or are all online multiplayer games going to have this live service element? Other than indie games are struggling to think of the last multiplayer game of note, not to also be live service. That's from Kurt also. Uh, any thoughts on this, Matthew? You're not a multiplayer guy, really, are you? Not really, but like everyone in our office still plays local multiplayer games. Maybe they are indie in nature but like the appetite's there and like in a world where mario kart 8 is like one of the best-selling games of all time like that that would suggest there's still an appetite yeah i think like nintendo nintendo will will you know keep us out of the games of service era um some people (laughs) anyway (laughs) well you know arguably having like a a season pass of new tracks is kind of life servicey but you know not really it's like you can just they just turn up and they're a nice little treat they've added to your game. So, um, yeah, I think um, I think that's that's a good point, Matthew. I think there'll always be a, there'll always be room for it, but it, it's just going to be hard. It's just hard for them to break out. The live servicing exists for a reason because 
I guess, like, you know, they make money so they can invest more money back into it, etc. It might not be for you, and fair enough if it's not. But, yeah, I think that I think it'll always exist in some form. And it's a good, it's a very good point that Nintendo are kind of the arbiters of that to some degree. Oh. So, uh, Matthew, should we leave it there and um, roll over the rest of these questions yeah, to I our next so, open play? I can smell a pie. Yep, and I'm going to make some uh, mozzarella little pasta balls. So that's going to be good. I've got to um, get pie in my hole, my tooth hole. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! I, I, I promise we won't keep talking about the tooth hole, and it'll I'll keep heal, pushing Matthew to get it then replaced. It'll be old news. Yeah, I still think you should just get another tooth there. How much is it here to get a replacement tooth? I don't know. I don't even want to. I can't even imagine. You didn't even ask. You just went. You're just like, okay, I'm stuck with my little tooth hole now. Is that it? Is <laughs> yeah, that... it won't be a hole forever. It will heal. It will fill. All right, fine. Like fair new enough. gum will grow. A new, new gum? Is that like it new will coke? be new gum! <laughs> Is that like new coke, new gum? Okay. No! Just fresh uh, gums! <laughs> fresh gums! Okay, that's uh, that's this episode done. Thank you for listening to the back page of Video Games <laughs> Podcast. Matthew, where can people find you on social media? Uh, Mr. Basil underscore pesto on Twitter I'm- and threads. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. I'm also on threads. All I've done is post three pictures of one dog. So um, <laughs> I wait to see if it takes off before I make a, make a podcast account. I'm not so sure it will. After oh, it's a, a load week, of old shit. It's quite crap, isn't it? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash backpagepod. Coming up on the podcast, the PlayStation 3 draft. That's uh, next week's episode. After that, we have another what we've been playing. We're going to cover a bunch of stuff that's come out recently. Diablo 4 and Street Fighter are on the list. So um, look forward to that. August is like shaping up to be quite a good month, I think, Matthew. I've got a job, uh, Jeremy, alive and ask him if he fancies coming on the uh, Baldur's Gate um, slash PC RPG episode. Maybe you can just listen to this and that can count as his invite. Jeremy, get in touch. We'll have you on the pod. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>